And we are live. This is Dark Journalists. Uh, what a fantastic crowd we have out there in the ideas from already tonight. Of course, tonight I am joined by the lovely Olivia. Hi, everybody. And uh, Olivia, you want to be starting something. You got to be starting something. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. YouTube was starting it with me this week, uh, taking down some vaulted hot zone videos about NASA and Gordon Cooper which all got me thinking about the research I was doing. And uh, I've been adding to it in the background and planning on another episode, but they incredibly accelerated that schedule, shall we say. Mm -hmm. But this was unusual as the original video that they took down um, came from three years ago. I mean, it was from 2020. And for me, like uh, that video set the pace for a series of investigations around NASA with the hot zone. But why they would go back to it and the reasons behind it being deceptive misinformation don't add up either. So it didn't make, <laughs> didn't make any normal sense. And the challenge on it, uh, the response there, you know, I had a technical issue. What's interesting is the very same day Gigi Young had a video removed for also nonsense reasons that was also back and was about Mars. So, uh, you know, you want to draw, draw too many conclusions, but what I would say is something funny was going on in relation to all this. And uh, let's say this was a week of synchronicities, shall mm-hmm. we? Indeed. And tonight we're going to explore them all through X-Series 162. This is secret NASA missions in the hot zone, Atlantis 2I in the Caribbean. That's what the trouble is all about here. And uh, it relates directly to the video that was removed I remember there was a Mars video that I did last year with Dr. Farrell, and uh, it was Mars the Big Lie. And, of course, that got removed everywhere. And what we did, it was kind of a smart thing to do, which is what we just ran through the episode live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, again, that's what we're going to do tonight, which is I'm going to take the foundational research from the original episode and add all those things that I've been working on about Cooper, NASA, the hot zone, Atlantis, the Casey readings, and uh, the kind of huge disconnect of a program that was operating completely outside the bounds of the government in space. So these are going to be the major factors as we get into it tonight. Uh, As usual, we're going to be taking your questions in the second half. And I want to remind you, you can ask those questions anytime during the show, and Miss Olivia will be putting them together. And I look forward to doing the whole ideas room Uh, This will be the last X-Series episode for 2023, but we'll still have some special reports and interview stuff coming up for you at the end of the month here. Um, But let's really get that ideas from rocking tonight. Miss Olivia, before I go any further, what's going on out there? Jay Paul says, so glad to be here. I am so impressed how ahead of the times DJ was as I listened to decades old videos. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. I really appreciate it. I mean, uh, you know, the X series was coming up on the sixth anniversary in March. And, uh, of course, we've been doing, we put out the Agent Oswald documentary all the way back in 2014. It's incredible. It's quite remarkable and an interesting journey. It's been, um, exhausting. What's funny, <laughs> absolutely. What's interesting is how much of the X steganography points that we laid down as dots. Now, you know, there are, there's incredible researchers out there whose work I've followed who are years and years ahead of different trends. What I want to say about the ex is it's quite unique 
in this sense as a lens for this show because it keeps kind of us and them working from the same playbook, which is important because their playbook they think is way up here. When we crack into it with a code, as it were, a kind of Rosetta Stone for reading it, you know, because without that, the hieroglyphs in Egypt are just a nice, a bunch of nice, funny pictures. Um, once you get the steganography going, once you can read that, then you start to put yourself in the ball game as far as what's happening. And uh, things tend to make a lot more sense. Now, what's great about the ideas room, and I want to really salute everyone out there in the ideas room, is as I've presented things over time, a lot of the early things that I said relating to X and how they were going to use it as steganography and how they used it not just for 20th century and 21st century uh, projects, secret projects, moving them through various agencies of the government, but how that ex-steganography goes back through history. And, you know, you find yourself in Pythagoras, you find yourself back to the Book of the Dead, and then beyond um, with the Atlantean information. And that there was there was something where the ideas from you and the ideas from and what I was doing in the show clicked in together. And that's really the remarkable thing, because if you look at that, there we were working on all these things before they hit, before Musk tried to turn the whole world <laughs> into an X domain. Um, so, you know, what we're really talking about is um, how these things over time open up. And a, a number of things we've brought forward um, from the Nixon-Trump relationship, John Trump, all these different things that we've been able to connect dots on, the Antarctica connection with the JFK assassination. These are things I'm happy to bring on the record. And I, I just um, – I, the point I'm trying to make is not so much, you know, uh, about – how dynamic that information is. It's more that it's it's helpful if we can be ahead of that curve. That's what we strive to do on this show. And between us here, between the research I do and the things uh, that you contribute in the ideas room, that's where the magic comes. And that's exactly why they try to shut down these types of conversations. And also the reason they would try to censor the information outright, because I believe the information about the hot zone and our information relating to the UFO file as it relates to the government um, is some of the most groundbreaking information. And, you know, you saw this week um, a number of unusual things. One of them, of course, was Elon Musk talking uh, with Alex Jones on Twitter uh, in the spaces after he let Alex back on. I always said that Alex should have never been thrown off in the first place. And, of course, we did some nice shows uh, with Alex around the UFO file, which he was very um, he was very gracious to have me on the show. But he also knew a lot, uh, a great deal about the UFO file. So I was impressed with that. And um, that conversation that went on there was interesting because then you have this presentation of there's a Tucker network. And you have to connect these things up a little bit, that there's a kind of a consolidation around free speech and things about this nature, which is good. That is good and that is healthy. Um, what's interesting, though, is when you get into the UFO file, when people like Tucker take it on, and I've made this point about Megyn Kelly and, and others, and when they come out with these shows and they bring in all of these CIA people to talk <laughs> about the UFO file. That's You're never going to get anywhere near the truth. You know, You have all these shows like The Hill – 
who also control News Nation. And they do, they just like, you know, to spread the clicks out there for the UFO file. They don't care about the subject matter at all. You think Chris Cuomo <laughs> cares about UFOs? I don't think so. But um, so they were in the habit of bringing in, you know, the Lou Elizondos and the Chris Mellons and all these people that are directly related to the CIA operation. Now, Tucker Carlson had Grush on and uh, Dave Grush, who's the major who, you know, reported all these things and came out in July when we did a series of shows about him. Now, this is very interesting because on the day that Grush premiered on Tucker, and by the way, the interview was not very fruitful because, again, uh, it doesn't seem to me that Tucker Carlson knows a great deal about the topic, and that's a problem. So he's kind of throwing it out to these intel people. That's not a good idea. Um, but so the very day that that whole thing happens, I get contacted by David Grush, and he wants to have an off-the-record conversation which is fine because that's the kind of thing that I've offered to all those people involved on the Intel side when they wanted to go and push this uh, UFO thing since the 2017 New York Times article. The problem with that level of um, putting things out about the UFO file has always been that the people involved, like Elizondo, like Mellon, didn't have disclosure in mind. They were part of an op to hide things relating to the UFO file and to bring out a false version of disclosure. This is why, uh, you know, I and a series of other people have done reports on them, exposing the public lies involved there. Now, Grush was interesting because uh, he came forward and they did this kind of fast track through Congress. They had him up there talking a mile a minute, and then he didn't know what to say because what's you could say in the skiff, what you could say in other places. Now, here's what's interesting, and, you know, the, the conversation that I had with him was off the record, so I'll leave it off the record because you know, that's the way he wanted it. That's fine. And I gave him the opportunity to come on the show fully expecting, you know, tough questions. And um, as I've invited any of those people involved in the op to come on this show, and uh, I think the problem with the others involved is that they realized, oh, you know, Within a couple of minutes, this is not going to be, you know, sort of a George Knapp, Chris Cuomo, scratch my back conversation. You know, uh, is it hard to be a hero or a legend? <laughs> One of those. So um, I think that that those people looking at this show have said, oh, you know, we're never going to get past that. But Grush was different in this sense that he wanted to uh, reach out and talk about that. And all I can say, you know, in relation to Grush is you know, I gave him advice, which was um, the people that you're surrounded with around this, like Mellon, like Elizondo, that's not helping your story. And if so, if your story is legit, then those aren't the people who, you know, they've already tried to sham the public in the last five years. So my message basically, you know, that's the advice that I gave him. And um, I hope that he takes it and he's welcome to come on this show and speak about the issues of the things that he's trying to reveal. Uh, but the, the thing is, in relation to it, he's going to face the same questions that they would have faced. So you have to be ready for that because this show is not about, you know, it's not a News Nation fluff job. You're going to get real questions because we know about the real UFO file. And if you're bringing forward real information and if you're at odds with that government system, um, then it's going to be a real conversation. Uh, if it's, 
you know, an Elizondo, hey, you know, here's my great book and I'll, maybe I'll tell you about this. Maybe I'll raise my eyebrow when you mention dead bodies or something, uh, dead alien bodies. You know, that's, you know, that's not what this is about. This is not the kind of, you know, TTSA, George Knapp junk that they try to pull on us. So I always say in relation to these people, if you want to have a gentleman's debate, you're welcome anytime to come on this show and talk about it. And, uh, but nonetheless, it was an interesting, uh, week. And you might say, Miss Olivia, that was some timing. Mm-hmm. Let's think about that. So, or um, sus timing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, what I can say is remarkably, I, you know, the Tucker interview with Grush and along with the Rogan one, these are not, you know, it's like they don't know anything about the subject and I'm happy for them to, you know, study this stuff and use it in their conversations because, um, that's not an arrogant thing, but to just sit there and kind of, um, fluff the person who's talking doesn't make any, any sense. You know, there's a lot of, steps involved in the ufo file and the secrecy that's kept with it and you have to be able to separate people who are intel agents that are pushing an intel theme from genuine whistleblowers and uh so that's what we plan to do on this show i'll I'll follow up a little more uh, with that in the q a section but boy it was it was interesting and uh as i've said uh you know i'm in the case of grush he's welcome to come on this show and tell you exactly um what he is talking about and outside of the influence of Mellon or Elizondo or any of those people who have lied in public, you know, and that's the problem because when you get around people like that and they say it's guilt by association, but there's a, there's a taint (laughs) of the Intel groups and the lies that they've tried to put out with the UFO disclosure piece that might be totally separate from what he's saying, but he's going to have to do the separating. And that's the kind of level of advice that I gave him. Everyone, you're watching The Dark Journalist Show, off to a great start. Just you wait till we get to this episode because Gordon Cooper, the famous uh, Gemini astronaut, is right in the heart of this, along with NASA, secret missions, the work of Edgar Cayce, Ernest Hemingway, um, and ruins there in the hot zone of the Caribbean. Cuba, Florida, Bimini, Yucatan, it's all there. Uh, right in the heart of this episode, X-Series 162, NASA secret missions in the hot zone, Atlantis in the Two-Eye Stone. We're going to be taking your questions, as I mentioned, before I go any further. I want to remind you also to sign up for our newsletter at darkjournalist.com. That's the newsletter that keeps us in touch, and it's important um, in this sense that, you know, you can see from the censorship that we've experienced, and not just here. I mean, as a matter of fact, Uh, You know, (laughs) when it comes to YouTube, like there's a heck of a lot of information we've ditched out over the years right on this channel, and I'm happy to do it. I will use the social media networks, but they do censors heavily, and they cut us out of searches, and they do all kinds of things. The best way to stay in touch with us is just sign up for a free newsletter at our website, which is completely outside of all of this stuff. And it takes 30 seconds to do. You'll hear about the incredible shows that we have coming up for you, X-Series episodes in January. They're going to blow your mind and our plans for 2024, which are going to be remarkable and you're going to want to hear about documentaries of very special interviews with incredible guests coming up for you, along with special events uh, that we're planning. All that's in the newsletter. And so stand up and be counted. Make sure that you're on that newsletter list. And um, I guess before I go any further and jump into everything, Miss Olivia, 
you're up. Uh, Tim Houston says, don't get played, DJ. I know you won't. And the journey home says, DJ, why do you think Rush reached out to you in the first place? Um, yeah, well, I think, uh, what I heard before I even heard from Grush is that he watches this show. And has been for how long? For a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that, that would be my opinion on that. There's no way to play <laughs> this with me because it's a very simple matter of, you know, what did you experience in the government and who are you aligning yourself with? So if you're lined up with the whole Mel and Elizondo thing, it, you know, then nobody who, you know, looks at the UFO file from a practical point of view can get behind those people because those people have already proven in public that they're willing to lie and push a threat narrative to get their objectives accomplished. That's not transparency. There's nothing to do with it. There may be people in government who want to be transparent. Um, the problem is the saturation of counter narratives that are being brought out. There's too many. So if you're going to come forward like this, you can take this track of kind of the fluff news nation stuff on top and, you know, the widespread dissemination of the story with places like Tucker and Rogan. But uh, I'm not sure that they understand the subject matter enough to ask you the right questions. So uh, I don't, it, there's there's no possibility of being played so much as there's just a possibility of, um, you know, what you want to do with any of these people. And they're all invited. Even Elizondo is invited. They can come on this program and they have the ability to tell their story, but they're going to get real questions. And that's been a problem for that false CIA disclosure wing. Now, if the Grush coming out of that isn't related to any of that, if he really, if they glommed onto him, then he has an opportunity to part company from them and to say, this is my story. This is what I'm bringing out. And I have my own background. After all, the guy was in the military for many years and uh, he has his own story and he has his own military service record. So he doesn't need them. Uh, so that was basically my message in relation to that. And then it's just about what people will do, um, you know, in relation to this. There's a lot of people in the background trying to pull puppet strings around UFO disclosure. We've exposed it um, to a great deal, but not exposed it as in there's no UFOs. No, there's UFOs. <laughs> That's the whole problem, which is the nature of the UFO files at the core of this show. That's why false disclosure is such a um, distortion to lay on the public. And so that's where you find us really raising uh, our critical voice against this. But for real whistleblowers, happy to talk to them at any time and get to the bottom of what they're trying to bring to the public. What else you got? Ivan Langley says, you know, all the three letter agency dudes are watching and learning. (laughs) And Grush said as much, didn't he? Well, um, nothing from my conversation with him that he said, I'm going to say publicly. I'll leave that off the record because he he wanted it to be off the record. So that's fine. But I can say that I gave him, you know, this kind of advice. Um, So, you know, that's on the record. What I told him is what I just mentioned there. And uh, I hope I hope it does lead to better revelations uh, around all this. And I hope if there are other people in government who have genuine stories that they do come forward. That's always been a good thing. The problem is the emphasis And what they've been doing, the managed disclosure from the CIA level, has been putting together their talking points. And that's why when TTSA came out, they were surrounded 
the whole enterprise, the VP, you know, all of the consultants, everybody was CIA. It was obvious. And I think that they thought, hey, you know, this is the year punk breaks. <laughs> you know, we can just do this. And um, when I looked into it, even a half inch deep, it seemed like it was a complete intelligence operation. And then we started to see their intel points. And then they started to boss around people <laughs> uh, or get them to go along or whatever. And so when I watched the UFO fields bend from the CIA operation, it was it's a distressing thing. Now, there is the genuine UFO file research that can be brought forward. That's part of what we're talking about tonight with the secret NASA missions. And Gordon Cooper is right in the heart of genuine UFO disclosure. So let's take a different course with the UFO file versus the phony CIA UAP disclosure nonsense. There are two different paths in this. This is a fork in the road for this type of research. And, you know, the people in the fluff on top and even people who were, you know, do good coverage like Tucker and stuff, when it comes to this, they keep going, they, they go to the wrong place for that kind of information. So, you know, that's why you get these kind of half-baked conversations that don't sound like anything. And uh, I don't think that there's a good enough knowledge. I think there could be a really good discussion about the UFO file in public, but there's not a good knowledge base in the general, you know, the bro podcasts and, and this kind of thing. It's not there. And uh, I, I hope it will be. I've mentioned one thing before I want to highlight this, which is the people who do deep state political research are excellent generally. They understand the government. They understand the motivations of the government. They understand the players and the generations, the intergenerational uh, nature of the deep state, Peter Del Scott and others. Those people are totally different from the UFO file researchers who have one great advantage, which is they cover the UFO file, which is very important. Um, but the UFO file has to be understood with the deep state lens. If you don't crisscross the two, then you have, you know, nonsense that you hear in the UFO field like, oh, only left-wingers can bring it forward. <laughs> I've heard this from top people in that field. And uh, also that they're going to get all their information from counterintelligence agents. So that doesn't make any sense. So uh, they don't understand and they don't have the practical deep state knowledge and scholarship ability to tackle it. Not that they have to be, everyone has to be a PhD at all. No, they can be a high school dropout. I'm talking about the, the level that they go after the subject matter. So if you don't have that deep state understanding in relation to how the government operates, you won't understand the UFO file and the threat rollout and how it's combined with the continuity of government program. Those things are crucial, I would say, for what we're talking about going forward here. So the, re, the, the impasse and the fork in the road here is that the, U, the deep state researchers regard the UFO field as inferior. And they're right, except that on the UFO side, <laughs> they do have this understanding that there's a UFO file and all these hijinks around it, however they paint it. So it's only by bringing those two perspectives together are you going to get somewhere uh, in relation to the UFO file. That's important because without that combination of talent of the deep state researchers with the understanding of the UFO people, you're not going to get anywhere because the UFO people are too desperate to sell out. <laughs> uh, and that's been a real big problem. So they're just looking to be right. And that's, that's the worst possible place you can be. Everyone you're watching the dark journalist show, 
going deep tonight uh, on the subject of the hot zone, NASA, secret missions, Gordon Cooper, and the UFO file. We're going to be taking your questions in part two of the program. We opened up with some of the things that are going on this week. Um, they're opening up a new front against President Trump, of course, with the finding that, oh, you know, he may have left the government with these files on the Russian investigation, which was a phony anyway. Um, so they still don't know how to do that. And, um, you know, there, there's still a lot of unknown factors involved in this election. One of those factors I just want to mention here briefly, and we'll, we'll get to Robert Kennedy Jr. as well. Um, but one of those factors is Joe Manchin and the No Labels Party. I want to say this about the galloping momentum behind that party. They have tons of donors, one. They're already on the ballot come January in 35 different states. That only leaves 15 for them to get on the ballot with. The Kennedy campaign, um, where you know I think Bobby is a great candidate, and I think that he has the issues and needs to be bringing these things forward, but I, I, I mentioned that it's important to separate the campaign from the candidate at times because the campaign of the Robert Kennedy um, presidential run is not yet on the ballot in one state. So there's some mismanagement in there. and um, <laughs> That's a very polite way of putting it. <laughs> and I said it, you know, that Amaryllis Fox is running it after Kucinich checked out. And she is a Kennedy relative, and I understand all that, but she's never run a national campaign. It would seem to me if you want to win, you have to get a campaign manager who knows how to win and get you on the ballot. And the strategies for getting on the ballot don't make any sense because it is possible to um, buy. The, they have these organizations that go out, you know, wait in front of Whole Foods or whatever and just take signatures. That's what you want to do. For some reason, they're holding back on that and saying we can run ads on social media that's a real failing strategy, and it could lose a lot of momentum. If you miss one state that is important, you're out. So unless you're on the ballot in all 50 states, it doesn't make any sense. So somebody in that campaign um, better wake up to the fact that it's 35 to 0 on behalf of the No Labels Party. And if they run Joe Manchin from West Virginia, he could pull out a lot of the populist stuff that Bobby is running on and steal his thunder, and then those two independents go down, you know. So something has to be kind of looked at there. Manchin is a sleeper candidate with a lot of cred in the background, and he's a Democrat um, who, who talked a lot of conservative points but buckled over and over again to Joe Biden. Uh, so, But he already has announced his retirement from the West Virginia Senate. He already said he's going to be going around the country to see if there's any appetite for his kind of leadership and then the No Labels Party are saying, well, we need a, a candidate. So those guys were already locking in in the background. You're going to see him on the ballot in all 50 states. And then Bobby will be scrambling, you know, instead of just buying them. Look, the one thing the Kennedys have is money. <laughs> OK, just buy the different people to set up those organizations. You know, there's not enough time to set up a volunteer strategy enough to get on 50 uh, ballots. Not that I'm aware of anyway. Bobby has the issues. Bobby's the great candidate. He can bring it forward. The campaign uh, management has issues, and they're not stressing the right stuff, and he needs to go after the president, which he is doing more, I think, in the last week. I'm happy to see it. He has to go after Biden. That's the person whose job he wants. After all, it doesn't make any sense to go after 
Trump or something now. Trump doesn't have the presidency right now. It's Biden. And Biden's the one who's tripping us into uh, World War Three, who's spending all the money in Ukraine, who's stumbling around there, not knowing where he is, um, you know, and causing incredible destruction by opening the border and jeopardizing the entire country. That's really the target for the Bobby campaign. It's not Trump, in fact. Uh, as a matter of fact, you have more in common with Trump than with Biden by a long shot. So um, more taking off the gloves. That's what we need to see. And Bobby has the issues, and he's a great speaker. Everyone, you're watching The Dark Journalist Show. Uh, okay, I'm going to jump into this very special episode and get to the heart of secret NASA missions in the hot zone, Atlantis and the Two-Eye in the Caribbean, but Miss Olivia, Europe. Amarillo Gunrunners wanted to know, so Bobby, is he really running or just stirring things up? Doesn't look like he's really running, not to win. Well, here's the thing. Look, a lot of people are running for 2028. There's no question about it. Both candidates who are leading, Biden and Trump, can only serve one term because Biden already served one and Trump has already served one. So they each only get to 28. There's no beyond for them, which is why, in my opinion, um, one of them is going to get in. Now, it has to be that whoever gets in next respects the Constitution, will lock down the border, and we can return to some sanity in the United States. That means somebody who understands the Constitution and the border either has to be Bobby or Trump. I don't see anybody else out there who can handle that. People that you see like DeSantis or Nikki Haley and these types, they are running for 2024. Now, they're also running on the idea that Trump could get um, you know, thrown in prison by the Biden administration as they pull real kangaroo court banana republic moves. But that, you know, that's that's not really something to run a campaign on for those guys. So that's like a wait in the wings kind of situation. Um, there have been some things floated that this uh, judge who's in charge of the J6 case and the things that she's looking at that if they were to bring Trump to trial during the campaign, which remarkably they're planning to do, which is total interference in a campaign, that if they do that and uh, if they should, you know, if Trump should lose that, which would be absurd, but let's just suppose it were true, that she has the ability not to give him bail while he's doing a an appeal, which would mean effectively place the leading candidate for president in jail. That's when you would have real outrage in the United States. I hope we don't get to that because that's a constitutional crisis and, um, you know, of a level we've never seen in this country. So if they, if they make those moves, if, if we make our voices heard now that they can't take the candidates, whoever they are, and put them in jail, I don't care if it's Bernie Sanders, you're not going to put a presidential candidate who's leading in jail. Um, that's un-American regardless if you're a Green Party, Democratic Party, Libertarian, or Republican. So, uh, you know, we need some kind of return to sanity on that. But can we, can we make something clear? Um, you sure. don't necessarily support Bobby, but you like analyzing the kind of war games, the, the sort of the chess game of politics. Well, no, I have, I have some favorability towards Bobby. Right. There's no I question mean, about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Because but it, Bobby you're is. Not, backing him 100% by any means. Well, I would like to see he is going to have to, I can't, you know, either Trump or Bobby, my vision for this is both of them coming in, Trump from this side, Bobby on this side, and smashing the Biden regime in the middle. The Biden regime is the problem. So either one of those candidates can do the job. Uh, right now, it looks like Trump has the ability to do it. 
Bobby has a series of issues and he also, you know, has taken on the Fauci people and, and this kind of thing. So he's on kind of a different level. The problem there has been up to now that he has not taken Biden on well and that that is where he needs to move. And that's where, look, if you look at how um, John Kennedy in 19, the 1960 election versus Nixon, he was a gentleman, but he also went after Nixon heavy on issues. And at one point, you know, he called him an elephant's backside. I mean, you know, he, he, he was not going to hold back on that. And uh, I don't see, uh, you know, there's something, there's some watering down in the campaign. Again, separate the campaign from the candidate. Robert Kennedy Jr., I think, could do a great job as president. Um, but the candidacy has to be supported by that infrastructure. And, um, you know, there's going to be distractions in this too. When you hear about candidates, they're going to raise like, oh, this person over here as a way to try to steal thunder from Bobby. What are some of those candidates? Sank Eager <laughs> and all, all those guys, um, you know, total ridiculous. He he wasn't even born in America. So, um, you know, you're going to have a lot of distractions in this election. Here's what you're looking for. Someone in the election who respects the Constitution can lock down the border and is not engaged in all this madness of social engineering. Now, you're not looking for a perfect candidate because you're not going to find him or her. So that would be my uh, thoughts on that. But I think it is important, like Trump or Bobby, one of those guys has to get in. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. But it's a good question, actually, um, you know, because there are things you're going to look at candidates um, like Bobby and you're going to have to say, look, at a certain point, you know, Trump is already after Biden's job. He's going after him. You have to go after him, too. That's the way to win. And uh, you can't be late on that one. <laughs> that would be my that's my free advice for the Bobby Kennedy campaign for this week. Everyone, you're watching the Dark Journalist show. Great to have so many of you here tonight. And uh, Miss Olivia, we're pretty much done. I guess we'll just yeah. wrap it up right now. <laughs> uh, yes, and let's, let's actually start the whole thing. Dina Rona says, I want to know what is the hot zone? Ah, yes, the craze in the hot zone. All right, there's an area that is between the tip of Florida, Bimini, the western tip of Cuba, and the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, back in originally 2016, I had always known um, for years how active the area was with UFO activity, for example. Second, I knew also about predictions that Edgar Casey had made and different findings that had been found for years. Then also around there, but not actually right in there, is the Bermuda Triangle, which we also know is related to some very unusual stories. But what I got originally as information from people who had worked in some capacity either for the military or for contracting agencies for energy companies who said, when I work, when I worked in that area, they weren't active. They said, I had to sign non-disclosure agreements that if I saw something down there, I, that was like a pyramid or something. I had an agreement that said, if I said that I could be court-martialed, sued, go to prison, you know, re revealing IP secrets, revealing government secrets or whatever it happened to be. Um, 
I opened up a vast area of research to find out exactly what we're talking about. This is the area that I'm mentioning here. That is the hot zone. And basically this gigantic um, geopolitical game that's been going on for a number of years about archaeological ruins in this area, along with some very unusual research that involves some of very deep uh, players over history, including Thomas Townsend Brown and others. There was a story back there about a scientist oceanographer named Paulina Zalitsky who had found a city off the coast of Cuba. And this made me think of a story that I had heard about from much earlier, which was related to Ernest Hemingway's brother. So these are how the dots started to connect for me. And then um, the further dots were that in Bimini, uh, Casey had predicted that there were Poseidian ruins that were rising off the coast of Bimini and that that was an Atlantean temple and that one of the famous Hall of Records would rise there and that they would see remnants of it in 68 or 69. In 1968, J. Manson Valentine found the Bimini Road. So uh, the idea that there are these ruins in that area and that they're responsible for a great deal of unseen geopolitical pressures about who finds it first, one, and who's there as it's rising and claiming it as it rises in subsequently international waters um, became a, a very interesting investigation. I found that people, for example, as diverse as John Lennon or Ernest Hemingway owned lots in the ocean about where they thought um, Atlantis would rise and how when that land rose, it would be out, it would basically be a new nation. And if you go a little bit deeper into it, you'll find that Ernest Hemingway's brother, Les, actually named it um, and put together everything for it, a flag, <laughs> uh, and claimed it as an actual nation out there in the ocean. What was all this about? Uh, this all relates directly to this hot zone intrigue. At its core, it relates to ancient ruins about a very sophisticated civilization and the massive ruins that are underwater, which would change our historical narrative about humanity's background, one. But two, also relate to advanced technology, because one of the stories that goes along with it is about something called, and Edgar Casey coined the term, the two-eye stone. And the two-eye is T. U-A-O-I. It's an unusual word uh, that Casey repeated in his readings often and spelled out. Um, the origin of that word, when he said two-eyes stone, what I've been able to find out about the word is that it means something like the people of the stone. Um, at times it was referred to as the blue stone in the Casey reading. And I'm going to read um, a little background on the stone tonight as well. Also, what a NASA scientist did when researching it, which is so interesting to me. Now, um, in Casey's work, the two-eye stone is what the Atlanteans used to power their civilization. And it sounds like an incredible uh, energy source, solar power related with the use of crystals. Now, later on, in those readings, and he gave consistent readings, over 900 readings dealing with Atlantis. Um, in the later parts of those readings, there's a por kind of a portable version 
of this, which seems to be called a firestone. So whereas the two-eye stone is this kind of massive power station thing, you have these smaller ones everywhere, which are the firestones. And Casey had said, well, you know, there's going to be an emblem of these firestones found in Yucatan, and they're going to bring it to the Pennsylvania State Museum. You know, and there was some confusion about UPenn versus Pennsylvania State and a lot of things that we've covered in the Hot Zone episode. Um, and he didn't say the actual stone would be there, but he said an emblem of same would be taken there. And that, But he also said these stones, which they know so little about, are being discovered now. That was 1932. And if you go back into that history, there's a lot of research going on, but it's actually going on in a place called Piedras Negras. And Casey is saying Yucatan. Well, it's interesting because at the time, the whole region was known as Yucatan. So a lot of people suggested that hall of records um, I wouldn't say a lot of people, actually. I should only say maybe a couple, in fact, and we were one of them, um, have suggested that Piedras Negras, you know, some people around the Casey Foundation have suggested this. What's interesting is, um, as part of our review of 2023, we did Pawgate, part one and part two. It's all there about not only is there uh, evidence for an advanced civilization in Piedras Negras and that the firestones that Casey was talking about, there's emblems of them, but also there's a sphinx. <laughs> uh, in that area. And we brought forward the pictures of the Sphinx and that Sphinx disappeared. I'm going to show you some other disappearing ruins tonight and how it relates to this story, along with the fact that uh, Gordon Cooper, the astronaut, discovered a major Olmec site after he left NASA. Now, isn't that interesting? Everyone, you're watching the Dark Journalist show. We're going to tell you how this all fits together. I want to remind you briefly uh, to go to darkjournalist.com and sign up for our newsletter. That's what keeps us in touch around all this censorship, which is what kicked off this episode, which is that they took down my original Gordon Cooper Hot Zone episode. Of course, we have plenty of other Hot Zone episodes still up there. But the strange timing uh, around them doing that with all the things that were going on this week, I think was unavoidable to see. And, uh, I decided that we would again do the Gordon Cooper NASA hot zone episode, but I would add all the new research that I've accumulated over the past couple of years on this. And uh, that's what we're bringing you tonight. Uh, I also want to say that we're taking your questions in part two uh, of the ideas room tonight of this episode. And um, this is the last X show for 2023. We're going to bring you some reports and interviews for the rest of the year. But uh, so we'll really get in there tonight and mix it up in the ideas from Miss Olivia Europe. Nick Malone said, uh, what type of crystal is the two eye stone quartz? I'm going to give you an actual description of it from the Casey reading and you can <laughs> you can decide what you feel that it is. Here's the description that Casey gave about the two eye stone. Here's the question. Going back to the Atlantean time, what was the two eye stone of what shape or form was it? Casey's response on the record. It was in the form of a six-sided figure in which the light appeared as the means of communication between infinity and the finite, or the means whereby there were communications with those forces from the outside 
Later, this came to mean that which the energies the energies radiated, or as of the center from which there were the radial activities through the various forms of transitions or travel through those periods in the activity of the Atlanteans. It was set as a crystal, though, in quite a different form from that used there. Do not confuse these two then, for there were many generations of difference. This is what I think is the two-eye stone versus the portable fire stones. And we'll talk about that more. Uh, in those periods when there was the directing of airplanes or means of travel, though these in that time would travel in the air, on the water, under the water, just the same, yet the force from which these were directed was in the central power station or the two-eye stone which was the beam upon which it acted. In the beginning, it was the source from which there was the spiritual mental contact. I'm going to read more uh, from that. But again, he's giving you two things. He's saying, here's how it physically looked. Here's how it was physically kept. And he talked about a dome where they rolled it back so the star's activities could work on it. And that it drew from the sun, but it also drew from stars which were on fire themselves and directed that energy. Now, uh, this is Casey talking in the 1920s, way before the discovery of lasers, way before even nuclear possibilities in public. Um, so Casey is giving us a huge leap in science back there. And at the time, it must have sounded like the greatest piece of science fiction from this sleeping man in trance telling us about these Atlanteans who were flying around. And what's interesting, if you dig into those readings, you're going to find some unusual, what I call apothium effects that the Atlanteans are generating. Apothium, again, is this factor, A-P-O-T-H-E-U-M, where it seems like the physics of reality just distort. The normal physics that we're used to in reality fail to operate. So all the apotheum effects, um, for example, Casey talks about the Atlanteans. Well, they don't go and fly over mountains. They fly through them. So there's some dematerialization that takes place. If you um, play around with some of the stories around the UFO file, if you go in there and look at it, you're going to find some of the famous stories about commercial pilots. One story in particular about a Japanese pilot. He's looking down. And there's this enormous craft that's going around him. And this is 1986. And he puts it on the record. And if you go back and read some of that, and there's many like this, he says, well, oh, yeah, this is a gigantic thing. Oh, wait, I can see through it. <laughs> so it's dematerializing as he's looking at it. It's not taking off and disappearing at a high speed. This thing is fading out. So uh, there's something here from somewhere else, and the way that it is operating is it's visible, and then it's not so visible. That's an apotheum effect, and here is Casey saying, well, you know, <laughs> they're taking the same craft, going under the water, they're going in the air, they're going all over the globe, but they're also going through things. So these are the types of things that catch me. The next part is that the two-eye stone and what it's used for um, seems to have a spiritual purpose literally attached to the technology so that they're using it to communicate with the other realms the saintly realms as it were um and something on the you know the outer spheres as he calls it so they prepare the priestesses in the temple through the use of the two eye stone they interact 
with these higher forces and bring back these messages. So that's that's the nature of what Casey is saying the technology is used for by one group in Atlantis, who's the leading group, called it the Amelius group. But the Amelius group gets uh, imitated and uh, by another group called the Belial group, and they start to use the same technology for the types of things we use it for now, like <laughs> blasting other civilizations out of existence. And there's a great struggle that goes on for a number of years. And what happens is part of that struggle and part of the overuse or the misuse of the technology leads to the Atlantean continent, which Casey and Plato both put outside of, you know, the Mediterranean on one side of the Atlantic. But then Casey says, Gulf of Mexico on one side, you know, outside the Mediterranean on the other. That's the width. So, you know, you've got Spain, you've got everything there on that one side, and on the other side, you've got what remains, Bimini, Cuba, and Bermuda. Um, now, what's interesting also when we think about this is Casey's telling us in that great expanse that when they activate the technology and it turns against them, basically it splits the island into three different islands. And the islands are called Arian, Og, and Poseidia. Poseidia is the island that I paid the most attention to because Poseidia um, is the one that was basically the culture that seeded the Mayan civilization, the Inca civilization, and the others. And it was located right off the east coast in that area of the hot zone. Uh, so what remains of Poseidia is Cuba, Bimini, and you know, the little pieces there, Key West. And um, the more now, when I, on a regular basis in science magazines, archaeological magazines, you're seeing that they are finding mountain ranges that run a distance between Yucatan and Cuba and the evidence of entire land masses that were connected there that were once above water as recently as 10,000 BC. So, um, all of the stories that we've been given through the mystery school type teaching of Edgar Casey, Steiner, and others uh, are paying fruition now. We've got the science, you know, we have the ability with the satellites, etc. Problem is, a lot of the people who are running the world have that evidence on a much higher scale <laughs> because they've been operating and getting all that information, and we are here on a day-to-day -day human uh, level. But in any case, the information from the mystery schools gives us that leveling again we get to know some of what they know in this sense as a matter of fact in some cases um you know i've gone into stories where the central intelligence agency infiltrated the casey institution the are in the 1960s to try to find information about the atlantean hall of records that may have been inside there. So um, they have come <laughs> around looking in those archaeological wars for evidence of this. And um, so they don't know everything by a long shot. And uh, keep that in mind as we go along. I want to talk about how this gets us into uh, the NASA role in this that has an interesting timing piece in the late 50s and early 60s with the presidency of John F. Kennedy. And we're going to explore that through the figure of early NASA 
Gordon Cooper, who is the Gemini, famous Gemini astronaut and real American hero who was a staunch advocate in public for UFOs in the 1970s when it wasn't so popular to do so. And you didn't find yourself on the cover of, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, you, you may have, but uh, you didn't you didn't have that kind of fluff treatment of news nation or, you know, this kind of thing. It was kind of, if you were already a famous astronaut, you kind of wanted to avoid the subject. So he was pretty brave. So I'm going to jump into Cooper as we go here and then um, we'll do, you know, 30, 40 minutes on him and then we'll get to your questions. Before I go any further, Miss Olivia, Europe. Twilight Miss says, so wait, this is new. It drew in and focused stellar light, a cosmic laser beam then. And Dorothy, uh, D. Dorothy Papineau says, isn't there a firestone, uh, that rock hounds look for in the Midwest, like a crystal agate? Yeah, it's interesting too. And you're going to find that there's a major story waiting. It's a gigantic story. We've hinted at it here on the X series about Casey in Arizona and the mines that he visited there in Bisbee. Um, and, what he was doing in the readings was suggesting the Atlanteans went there and got lapis lazuli and mined it. Now, what's interesting are the amount of unusual things that happen to him when he goes down there. And he goes down there with an interesting character who um, would be the person who would invent FM radio uh, and was just an incredible radio pioneer. But the guy at the time was coming out of Harvard and he was, I think he was only 22 years old. And he'd come to Casey for these readings and basically they both got it in mind, you know, through psychic information and other places that they needed to go down there to Bisbee. And it's interesting uh, because a lot of unusual things happen that are obstacles on the way there. As a matter of fact, uh, Casey will record that as he's getting closer, that he has five flat tires in the course of 24 hours. Wow. So, uh, yeah, there was something, there were all kinds of strange obstacles. There were train obstacles uh, as well when they got there. And there's a whole weird story about this, um, which I'll have to dedicate a full episode to. We did one on Casey in Arizona, but uh, some of the anomalies I left out one of them that I think is interesting is that the reading originally said, actually gave him, well, you know, the person who runs the mind with the Atlanteans use, this is the guy's name. Uh, you know, this is the family that it's from. Here's where you can go. Here's the address. The address was given in the reading. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> hardcore. And they were following this information. But when they get there uh, and they show up, you know, to this mine, actually the owner of the mine says, oh, yeah, that's accurate. Except the guy died 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so that Casey source was plugging into something about somebody who was operating the mine, but the timeline was shifted around and uh, weird things happen there, including the fact that they see this woman who is um, the, the guy who died. It's, it's his granddaughter apparently. And she gives them access and tells them about how they can do this. And they do bring out these stones from that mine and what's interesting, uh, one of those stones is in the Natural Museum of Natural History. What's interesting, though, is when Casey is there, his psychic ability is heightened dramatically so that where he usually would sleep to give readings, 
or he would have impressions, telepathy and things like that. Now he sees things visually directly as he <laughs> has the vision and the things that he's having in his vision, he sees immediately actually in front of him as if it's an actual entity. So really incredibly deep supernatural things happen to him and this other person. Now what's odd is when Casey is returning, the woman uh, shows up you know, it's almost like she materializes the, the young woman who's related to the owner. She's suddenly there in front of him on the train and she is talking to him about the mine and how they need to go. Uh, what would, if it seems like over the border into Mexico, into this other town uh, to find even more re- representations of the stone that they're looking for. Now, what's interesting is, and what I find, and I'll I'll get into this, but basically there's a town that they were going to, and there's one on this side of the border in Arizona, and the same name of the town is in Mexico. So when they say, well, he went over here and did these mines in Mexico, I don't actually, I think that that's faulty research on the part of the Casey researchers. I think they're going to find that the town with the same name that's on the Arizona side is actually the town and the mines that they went to. So let's find out (laughs) as time goes along here. It's hard. It's a murky path that they both have the same name. My impression is that someone has accidentally ascribed the Mexico mines to this. But in any case, they also have dramatic experiences there. And when they come back, it's so unusual, including the fact that Casey has a vision of his mother who's, who's passed on. Uh, who also had a lot of psychic ability, and she hands him a silver dollar in this strange, you know, state that he's in. And um, he, when he comes back, his whole family realizes that he's acting unusual in a sense because he's been through this incredible mystical experience. And his son says, "Where did you get this?" And he said, "I got it from this exchange." Um, you know, basically, the ghost of your grandmother gave it to me. And so Hugh Lin, his son, is somebody who is almost skeptical and would take a long time for him to understand the readings. So he takes the coin and he actually gets in touch with the government. And he says, you know, there's something unusual about this coin because it doesn't have any markings, but it's a silver dollar. And then he gives it to the government and then the government takes it and then they come back. And they question him and like they're going to arrest him. They say, are you counterfeiting and all this kind of thing? And um, that coin, the astral manifested coin, disappears into this abyss because of his skeptical nature of checking out his dad's work. Very strange stories there. Um, Sweet. Did they ever, did they get it back? No, no, of course not. They never get it back. But what is interesting is there's a whole question about what Casey was referring to about Atlanteans and lapis lazuli and how it may have been the way that he describes it, a stone called um, chrysocala, mm. right? And that is an actual copper ore and that is like the pure lapis. So there's some very interesting piece there. But um, if you want, <laughs> if you want to go deep, Casey in Arizona, that's some deep stuff. And we're going to, we're going to have more on that, uh, for you because it does relate so much because when we get into the two eye stone, the properties that are contained in it and how the Atlanteans utilize are absolutely fascinating. Yes. And um, Casey has whole books written about gemstones, right? 
Oh yeah, they've taken the readings and um put them together. You know, there's one on Casey and Gemstones. And um, you know, remarkably things like um lapis lazuli, azurite, and things of this nature come up a lot uh with the whole idea of attunement. What he does say to the people who were around the two eye stone in a previous life, you know, when they previously were in Atlantis, and that's where a lot of this goes, which is they've had these experiences, and when they come back, they're basically the Atlanteans facing themselves again with a high technology culture. This is what we're talking about. Um, and the Atlanteans are facing off against what they did last time, which was destroy themselves and create this gigantic apotheum thing that took place there in the hot zone. And when you hear the magnetic anomalies, then you go into the Bermuda Triangle disappearances, vortexes, portals. Then the story, the whole thing starts to click, I would say, and make a lot more sense. I'm going to read a little more about the two-eye stone, and then we're going to get into Gordon Cooper, because you're going to find out very strangely that one of the people who was deep, deep on the archaeological side was astronaut, legendary astronaut Gordon Cooper. All right, let's do it. Um, so a little further along with the two-eye stone. And again, it's T-U-A-O-I. And this is something that showed up in Casey's research. I've never seen it anywhere else. I've, I've seen in the Steiner work about their power centers. I've seen in Annie Besant's work about the incredible technology of the Atlanteans. Uh, there are some other writers that touched on it, Scott Elliott and others. Nothing about this stone and certainly nothing about the, the spelling so I think it's a it's a major key left on our doorstep, as it were, by the mystery communication that Casey's having. Okay. Um, understanding these are all the following of laws. If there would be the understanding or comprehension of these, for as has been given, the basis, the beginning of law carries all the way through. And that which comes or begins first is conceived in spirit and grows in the mental and manifests in the material, as was the central force of power in the Atlantean experience. For it was the means and source or manner by which the powers that be made the centralization for making known to the children of men, the children of God, the directing forces of powers. Man eventually turned this into a channel for destructive forces, and it is going towards that again in the present. Um, and they say, well, you know, where did they keep the two-eye stone? And he says, in the center of a building that today would be said to have been lined with non-conductive metals or non-conductive stone, something akin to asbestos or other non-conductors that are now being manufactured in England under a name that is well known to many that deal in such things. The building above the stone was oval or dome wherein there could be the rolling back so that the activity of the stone was received from the sun's rays or from the stars, the concentrating the of the energies that emanate from bodies that are on fire themselves with the elements that are found and are not found in the Earth's atmosphere. The concentration through the prisms of glass, as would be called in the present, was in such a manner that it acted upon... Oh, let me turn the page. That it acted upon the forces 
and the instruments that were connected with the various modes of travel through induction methods that made the character of control as remote control through radio vibrations or directions would be in the present day through the manner of the force being impelled from the stone that acted upon the motivating forces in the crafts themselves. Um, I pointed something out, and it's kind of a favorite <laughs> anecdote of mine, which is when they come to Casey uh, and ask him what describe these Atlantean crafts that you're talking about, and he said, well, there's a good description already in the Bible, actually, and it's what Ezekiel sees. He said, but that was much later. So um, Ezekiel sees a very advanced craft, and if you dig into it, um, there's all kinds of mechanical descriptions there, really. Now, a lot of people um, who get into alternative research go down the ancient aliens <laughs> rabbit hole on that, and they think, well, he's seeing a UFO, and that's all there is to it. Casey is suggesting something else here. He's saying, yeah, there's a very unusual explanation for it. It's Atlantean technology. But he's also saying that the Atlanteans, who, by the way, destroyed themselves in 10,500 B.C., and then there's an egress of peoples to all these different places like the Pyrenees and Egypt and uh, Mexico, um, it's very interesting when you bring these stories along because what you're getting with Casey and what he's suggesting is um, between 10,500 B.C. and, say, about 1,500 B.C., when Ezekiel was around, um, someone kept it the whole time. Someone kept the technology and was able to bring it in so that Ezekiel would see it. So somebody had it. And um, fundamentally, the story is the Atlanteans went so far with their technology and destroyed themselves, and we had to build back up from kind of a Stone Age level, while there were a few uh, people in the background, groups that kept the information spiritually, kept the history, and hid them in different halls of records in ancient times. But that we didn't get back to being this super sophisticated civilization that we are now until you know the 20th century. Um, that's the general understanding. So then if you figure in this Casey part, what it suggests here is that he's saying, no, someone had the technology, in fact. Someone had kept it, and someone was operating it. <laughs> and from Ezekiel's description, yeah, it sounds like a major UFO experience, right? And on the other side, it's a major spiritual experience. Well, you know, Casey was saying, in fact, that the uh, Atlanteans combine spirituality with their technology. So when he's having all these spiritual realizations in the presence of this craft, that's the crisscross there. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about and looking for when we get into the hot zone and the story about the Atlantean the technology. Everyone, you're watching the Dark Journalist show. This is secret NASA missions in the hot zone. Atlantis, two-eye in the Caribbean. I guess we've covered enough of the two-eye to give us a foundation now we're going to go to the figure of Gordon Cooper. Uh, I want to remind you, before we get there, to go to darkjournalist.com. Sign up for our newsletter. That's a free newsletter. It keeps us in touch, and it lets us know, um, you know, you basically get around all the civilization, you know, <laughs> censorship that's going on, which is remarkable uh, in relation to this. And it's one of the reasons we're doing this episode tonight, because... 
got this very important notification about Dark Journalist X Series mm-hmm. 92 secret missions, NASA in the hot zone, that it was removed because it was, in essence, uh, deceptive misinformation. <laughs> now, uh, I was talking about this Mars episode I did with Farrell last year that they removed and said it was a historical impersonation, which is, that's a classic one. Uh, <laughs> and I think we're talking about the moon and Mars and that. So apparently we were impersonating the moon landing. <laughs> um, but, um, this got me going because of course all of the information in the X series is one complete set. I've made it all available. It'll always be available, of course, for subscribers, 100%. But publicly, I've tried to make the episodes available. Um, and subscribers also get things like bonus interviews, and they'll, they'll get uh, things first. But in terms of the series, I really wanted everyone to have this ability to have this. So when they start to break up the set, as it were, mm. we have to come in and um, you know make a point. By the way, uh, I mentioned a couple of things about some ruins. And since we're going to get into Cooper through the archaeological side, I want to do this. Um, I want to show a very unusual picture from Guatemala. This is in 1950. And they found something that was remarkable. Now, we've all heard about the Olmec heads, and I'm going to get to the Olmecs in a minute. But have you ever heard of this? (laughs) Well, they found a few of these very unusual heads, very large size. You can see the comparison down there uh, with the car. There's a regular car from 1950, and here's this thing. It was uncovered as part of an archaeological dig, and then what happened was someone said, lose the address on that. So this thing disappeared to history, but somebody had it. That's the same thing that happened to... Wait, who said Who said to who? That's a good <laughs> Lose question. Lose the address. Well, it got lost. Mm-hmm. So even though it showed up at one point, they lost it. Somebody, though, kept, kept up with it. And here's an interesting piece as well, which is um, if you go and you study what I was telling you about the uh, Sphinx in relation to Piedras Negras and that whole area. And Pawgate, part one and part two, which we put out last spring, those episodes cover the fact that that Sphinx disappeared. Totally off the record, goes off into history. Now, what's interesting is the paw, which Casey said the right paw of the Sphinx is where the Atlanteans hid the Hall of Records. The paw in the Mexican Yucatan jungle, you know, that's not something that you hear about, but you do hear Casey saying, well, they also placed one of the halls of records right there in Yucatan. So this paw gate and the paw aspect is the representative symbol, which is why when they're going for the Poseidon Bimini ruins, they may be looking for some kind of paw motif. And you might find yourself with the mystery school of the Atlanteans, the thing that they were using as the motif was the lion's paw. Very interesting. Um, that seems to be the symbol for holding the records over time. This thing, nobody knows where it is. It's a goner. Joseph says it looks like one of the Easter Island heads. Isn't that true? It's interesting. Mm. 
It's also striking for its complete lack of Mesoamerican features. It's much, much older. Uh, let's keep going on that track for a moment. And we're going to do this backwards because um, Cooper gets into the Olmecs. And he finds a site as soon as he quits being an astronaut. <laughs> he suddenly is involved with one of the greatest archaeological finds of history. We don't hear that so much about Cooper now, do we? Um, let's look at some of these Olmec heads. I remember that um, Graham Hancock got into trouble because he said, oh, they're, they obviously have African features. And they gave him a hard time, said, oh, you're a racist for saying that, <laughs> which was ridiculous. No, the Olmecs have African features. And um, this is a historical reference. But I'll tell you, the more you dig in to the Olmecs, uh, and I have looked at a series of statues, and we know very little about them. There's also a major Asian aspect involved here, too, or what appears to be Asian. For example, check out this Olmec doing yoga. <laughs> I mean, look at that. That's one. impressive. Yeah. So something's going on here. Where he was does. That, found? that was found in Mexico at the Olmec site. That's crazy. Um, but then the Olmecs also have a little bit of another group inside there. And guess what? They look like this. <laughs> Who are they? <laughs> what, what's going on there? Uh, these Olmecs, uh, these are in leadership positions as well. They seem to have some of that conehead thing going on where the skulls are shaped in a certain way. Well, look at the size of their heads compared to their bodies. Mm, yes, they're very large. Um, one of the things that Gordon Cooper was able to bring out about the Olmecs was that um, it appeared that they had advanced ideas and may have been the creators of the compass. Now, um, there's a lot of strange magnetic stones that they've found in relation to the Olmecs. And uh, this, this is a hematite statue of an Olmec dwarf. This is also in a leadership position. Um, and what you're finding when you look at the Olmecs and the thing that intrigued Cooper was just how sophisticated they were. They had their own written language and a great cosmic understanding, much like the Mayans, but predating the Mayans. As a matter of fact, um, our friend Cooper placed them at 3000 BC. Uh, they may have been even older. They try to fit them into, and they say, well, it's 1200 BC, you know, <laughs> as if that's more acceptable. But it seems to me the older, back, further back you go, the better. Um, there's tons of X steganography going on with the Olmecs. Let's look at this. Okay, here we have an Olmec statue, which is definitely some kind of a yogi posture, and it looks like he's meditating. <laughs> um, that is an Olmec leader named Wur Jaguar. And uh, his headdress is kind of, you know, almost Egyptian. If you go in there a little bit deeper, you're going to find uh, ex-steganography on their belts all over so the symbol of the X, and what we've done in the show is we've tied that in with, you know, we hold the technology, basically, mm. the X steganography. Very old symbol, and the Olmecs have it in spades. Now, um, here's a few things 
that Cooper, and again, I know we're, we're coming into an interesting place with Cooper because who, who even really associates him with these things? Well, I'm going to tie it all back into his secret missions with NASA, but we're going to do this in a back to front way. So I'm going to bring him first directly in from his discoveries uh, of the Olmecs. And then we're going to back up to how he may have had this knowledge in the first place. Here's what he has to say about them. Uh, in the sites where he found the various Olmec artifacts, he says, we found representations of supernatural beings and of humanoids. Skilled engineers, the Olmec had managed to transport huge blocks of basalt and other stone from quarries more than 50 miles away from their sculpted monuments. Here's the problem, the Stonehenge problem, the Great Pyramid problem. How do these stones get moved? Obviously, you're dealing with a technology that we're not aware of now, but hinted at in mystery school literature, stone floats in the air in the same manner, Casey said. He said it would be rediscovered in 1958. Well, <laughs> if they rediscovered that anti-gravity, they didn't tell us about it. Uh, engineers, farmers, artisans, traders, the Olmec had a remarkable civilization. This is from uh, Cooper's own autobiography, by the way. It is still not known where they originated or the identity of their predecessors. I was given a few little artifacts to keep by the Mexican government because he finds this whole thing and he's saying, you know what, <laughs> I'm going to be rich. Um, but as it turns out, the government comes in there and they're like, oh, you know, you found this stuff. We're going to keep it. But they give him a few scraps on the way out. I was given a few little artifacts to keep, although most of what was unearthed rightly ended up on display at universities and museums in Mexico. Among the findings that intrigued me most, celestial navigation symbols and formulas that, when translated, turned out to be mathematical formulas used to this day for navigation and accurate drawing of constellations, some of which wouldn't be officially discovered until the age of modern telescopes. I was aware that archaeologists all over the world had discovered places, artifacts, and written records that defied rational explanation. This naturally led to the speculation that certain ancient mysteries might be attributed to, get ready, ancient astronauts from another world. Some of the questions were as old as who really built Stonehenge. The Olmec had used the same means of celestial navigation as the Egyptians and the Minoan civilization on Crete, and at the same time, how did they do it? Now, um, he is coming from a place of very deep knowledge as somebody who had headed up the Gemini program. And um, he himself is the last man to have been orbiting the Earth alone. And he did a lot of those orbits just by himself, which is quite remarkable. One of the things that he's known for in history was having an astounding memory. And um, it was suggested that uh, there were a number of missions where he got sent up by President Kennedy in 1963, May of 63, in fact, uh, which I've checked into deeply. And they're secret missions. But uh, ostensibly the reason is oh, you're going to watch out for nuclear activity around Cuba. Cuban Missile Crisis was over. So having him stare around from space in the hot zone, and they have satellites can do that, never made sense to me. And I started to wonder about JFK's relationship in the background with Cooper. And what you find, and it's in Cooper's own biography, that 
at any time when he was going to be moved aside or they were going to have a senior person lower him so that he wouldn't be involved in these missions, Kennedy himself, from a presidential level, interceded to make sure that it was Cooper who was on the missions. When Kennedy is assassinated, it's very interesting because although um, Cooper has you know, a major role in setting up the Apollo missions, he's passed over for being the actual astronaut involved in going on the Apollo missions, which he is surprised at. And also um, he decides, oh, you know what, LBJ, he doesn't have the same vision for NASA at all. And it brings him to such a state that he quits being an astronaut and he goes into this archaeological field first before Walt Disney hires him four years later. Um, he also will spout his mouth off about UFOs in the late 70s and he'll send a letter to the UN with the president of Granada saying we need to address this issue of visitors and UFOs and I've seen them. I know pilots have seen them and astronauts. You know, let's get this going through the UN. It's ridiculous. That's 1978. And uh, if I read you the letter now, <laughs> it sounds so much like, you know, the pitter-patter that you hear going on about the Chuck Schumer amendments that failed 2023 and all of the, you know, UFO uh, disclosure, CIA disclosure people being like, oh, we need that amendment. Um, you know, this stuff they've already had dialed in a long time ago. They've already been working with it for years. So everything we're seeing on the surface... They've been playing with it. Exactly. What we're seeing on the surface is, is a circus, is basically what I want to tell you. And that goes for AI, too. As dangerous as it is, they've been working with AI since the 70s and 80s. They know what it can do. And um, so, you know, this hand-wringing in public, like, oh, you know, what things AI will bring to our civilization. They've already been working on that question. So the hand ring is prearranged and they have a 40 year jump on us. <laughs> Everyone, you're watching the Dark Journalist X series. This is X series episode 162, secret NASA missions in the hot zone. Atlantis 2i in the Caribbean, the Edgar Casey readings, astronaut Gordon Cooper and some very unusual findings directly in the hot zone. I want to point this out, which is, um, I've pointed out in the hot zone episodes that there is an aviation aspect to um, all of these discoveries uh, in the hot zone, but also in areas, uh, you know, like the Mayas and the Incans, Central South America. And you're going to find that major people in history, from Amelia Earhart to Charles Lindbergh, are all deeply involved in those investigations. But on their official resume, you don't hear much about it. But if you go just a little bit deep under the surface, you're going to find, for example, that Lindbergh, when he was going for that Spirit of St. Louis thing, his day job was flying over the Yucatan and collecting information about ruins that he could see. This advantage of the groups that controlled what was being seen from above is gigantic. It's not addressed in a lot of literature. We hear, you know, uh, a lot of things about the people who have kind of massaged the culture into its present position um, and even people like Bernays and, and things of this nature. And they really did. And that's an incredible level of research. Well, I want to tell you about a gigantic manipulation <laughs> that took place from an aviation level. The higher these people got and the connections that they had from above looking down, uh, whether it's the beginnings of aviation 
the early work of the Cosmos Club, the older groups like NIMSA that Walter Bosley talks about, this is an incredible advantage if you can see things from the air. So it represents a scientific advantage that is so far uh, beyond, you know, industrialization and things that it gives you this incredible uh, advantage. But when it comes to archaeology, it's remarkable indeed because they didn't have things that we have now like LIDAR and things like that where you can scan a jungle and see all the buildings underneath. But they did have this ability to say, here are the points that we're looking for. So all those people, their side gig <laughs> that people like Guggenheim and others would fund are all these expeditions looking for the early Atlantean ruins. It's a major factor and it's completely left out. There is a period in the 60s and 70s because of the rise of Edgar Cayce's work, even though he died in 1945, but in the 60s is really when that comes out, that there's this interest in Atlantis and there's a, you know, there's a public kind of awakening around the whole thing. But it gets tamped down and shut down to a point where it's on a very low ebb in traditional culture at this point. But you're seeing that on the scientific side, they're catching up to something just like the discovery of things like Gobekli Tepe. For years and years, they were able to argue down Casey. Well, Casey's 10,500 BC. It's not logical. You know, the Egyptian civilization, basically the pyramids were 2,500. What are you going to do with the 8,000 years in between? Well, now we know what you do with the 8,000 years in between. You have a civilization operating for 8,000 years. Um, so the, the ball game has changed dramatically. But this aspect that's left out about the search in the hot zone um, comes up in some very interesting circles. And there was a, a British intelligence officer who retired and who had amassed all this information on Atlantis who said that a great deal of intrigue from a, uh, you know, political level was taking place over a large scale pyramid that was basically in open waters between in this hot zone area. And, um, from the information I was able to glean from people who had worked, you know, underwater and had jobs there and how they were made to sign these NDAs and things in the hot zone, I started to connect it up with a very interesting and unusual story about Ernest Hemingway. I'll tell this quickly and we'll get back to Gordon Cooper. Um, and that's a shot of the Bermuda Triangle. And as you can see, if you really just make that jump, that leap, as you're in the Bermuda Triangle here where we have all these magnetic anomalies, disappearances, plane crashes, everything else, portals opening up, time-stopping, Apotheum Central, well, you know, if you look here, I mean, there's Cuba. The hot zone basically is right here. So these things are overlapping dramatically. There's something hardcore right there in relation. And apparently, it's still operational. Now, was that a zone that they used because of its magnetic anomaly? And that's how they were able to, you know, use the two-eye stone? Or is the two-eye stone and the original power station of the Atlanteans driving those magnetic anomalies now. And is that what they're all after with the intrigues in the hot zone? That's really the question. So just a little piece. Now, I, I've done uh, over five episodes of the hot zone work dealing with Ernest Hemingway. That's how hardcore his story is in this. Um, 
Let me take a look at a couple of these people as well as we get into it here. So what we'll do is we'll do this section. We'll do the Cooper. We'll finish the Cooper NASA section, and then we'll go to your questions in about 15 minutes. Sounds good. All right. Everyone, you're watching the Dark Journalist Show, Secret NASA Missions in the Hot Zone, Gordon Cooper, Edgar Casey, the Two-Eye Stone, and the mystery of the Atlantean ruins off of Bimini. Uh, we're going to take your questions here in the second half of the show. I'll remind you also, sign up for a newsletter, especially if you're new here. Make sure that you stand up and be counted. The newsletter is free, and uh, you basically get all the information about the incredible things that we have coming up for you. The presentations, we did Blue Enigma, um, and we have this whole production there for you on November 17th and November 22nd that we did. We have more coming up for you including a very special, and I'm shooting way off now, a couple months into the future, February 25th. Save the date on that, mm-hmm. and I'll explain more later. Um, Les Hemingway. Let's, let's talk about Les Hemingway for a moment. Here's Brother Les. Brother Les gets himself a nation designation for New Atlantis. And he buys something there off the East Coast and sets up a little nation. He even writes letters to LBJ saying, we plan to cooperate with you as a nation. Now, he's the brother of Ernest Hemingway, an incredible resemblance there. And his bio is very interesting as well. One of the things he was absolutely convinced of is that there was an Atlantean culture there and that he could find evidence of it on Bimini. Now, there is actually a documentary that happens in 1978 where he's walking around into this healing well and bathing in this healing well with his daughter, Hillary, who is the cousin of uh, Mariel Hemingway and her sister, Margot, who also, believe it or not, figure into this mystery with the intrigues around their CIA dad and the fact that actually Ernest was afraid of him. Um his own son, who was their father. Now, um, Les Hemingway finds these different locations, and he talks very openly about how he thinks the Atlanteans were advanced technologically and how they had these healing waters and how uh, this particular well that he found can heal uh, arthritis and other things. He spends a lot of time down there because his brother, Ernest, the legendary literary, uh, you know, basically the father of the novel, and just, you know, uh, some of the most incredible novels ever written by Ernest. But Ernest lived on Bimini, and it was always under the guise of, well, you know, he loves fishing. Well, it's pretty interesting because um, what we were able to do through a series of uh, researching and backdating and crisscrossing articles, letters, and things is find an incredible crisscross with Ernest Hemingway and Edgar Casey, and interestingly enough, Edgar Casey gave readings for Ernest Hemingway, and uh, he was giving active readings for Hemingway's mother when Hemingway decided, "I'm going to Bimini, everybody." Well, what was it that Casey was predicting at the time? Casey was predicting that Poseidon Temple was going to rise off of Bimini, and that was the last vestige of Atlantis there. By the way, it stretched between Bimini and Cuba, and where did he spend the rest of his time in Cuba? Um, so there's an awful lot of intrigue there, which I 
you know, we can explore further and we have explored in some episodes of this hot zone series. Now, Casey, um, when you look at that crisscross of Casey talking about Bimini and you think about what Ernest Hemingway is doing there, one of the things, if you go back into the histories, you'll see that Ernest Hemingway spends all this time on the scientifically equipped boat, no guns on the boat, just scientific equipment, going between Bimini and Cuba and looking underwater. And he does it to such a degree that they ask him, what are you doing? What, you know, what's going on with this? Friends, associates, other people, they all hear about him doing this. And he says, oh, I'm looking for German U-boats which is the greatest excuse in the world, except he doesn't have any guns to deal with a German U-boat. So what was he really looking for? Um, whatever it is that he finds over time, he puts in a vault uh, near his villa in Cuba. When the Cuban Revolution hits, there's a real problem because he has to flee and the vault can't be brought along with him. So there's an international mission during the JFK administration to get Hemingway's vault contents back to America. And there's a conversation where they talk about it in such a way as to risk an international incidence to do it. So um, we did a series of these things and talked about how aspects of the vault were taken back in a mission by the CIA on a shrimp boat back to America where they would end up at the JFK library of all mm-hmm. places. But what about the real piece of information? You know, those things that ended up there were parts of stories, parts of poems and things that he had written and letters. That's great. But what would be so important to keep in a vault? What was he doing for years and years scanning the ocean? Well, if you think about his brother founding Atlantis, and you think about his brother having this deep interest and you think about Casey giving readings to the Hemingways. And then if you go a little deeper, you'll find that Casey's son, Hugh Lynn, writes in a letter a little while uh, there, sometime in the 1940s, and says, I'm going to um, you know, this little town outside Chicago. I'll be back in a month, going away for a month. And you know, he gets this tran- transcribed letter back and they say, well, where are you going to be? You know, he said, I'm spending time at the Hemingways. So, you know, think about friends and people that you know who you would spend a month with. <laughs> That's a pretty close relationship. Um, so the Casey's and the Hemingways, tight, very tight. Then you can start to look at Ernest Hemingway's career and his time in Bimini and Cuba a little bit differently. And that's when we start to understand the brothers' obsession with New Atlantis. And that's where a lot of this starts to open up, including the intrigues in that family and the fact that it seems like there's almost tragedy after tragedy when it comes to the Hemingways. Um, depression can run in families. There's all kinds of drama, etc. But what's missing in the Hemingway story? All of the hot zone information and his connection to Edgar Casey, which I remembered from a long, long time ago because I had read a reading that he had given for Hemingway's mother um, and talking to her about her art ability. And she brings up Ernest and that opens up the whole ball of wax. That gets us into an interesting area. Okay. 
There's one of the major entries of the hot zone. Now Cooper's mission. So he's sent up there, and he's doing these missions of May of 1963. Just hang out there above the Caribbean. Look down and tell me about what you see. Those are the instructions from President Kennedy. Um, and it's very interesting because I found the phone call that he had about um, Cooper returning. And, of course, you know, there's the traditional reason of, like, the president talking to the astronaut is up there. But when you think about it in the terms that I'm speaking of, the secret mission of looking for something there in the hot zone, then the call has a little bit more of an interesting take. Let's see if we can all share this one. Uh, I think I have it. It's short. I'll try to just see what I can do here. That's interesting. Is that weird loop at the end that says "Thanks, Major" three times? Whoa! <laughs> um, Everybody's got to uh, know is that code for something? <laughs> I I won't deny it. That's for sure. Um, there's there's a lot with Kennedy and Cooper. As I said in the background, he made moves to keep him in the loop. And, uh, what's, and to keep him in high ranking positions so that he would be directly involved in orbiting flights. And when you get into LBJ, you can see, and there's a disdain for LBJ in the Cooper book. You can feel it if you read between the lines a little bit. He's like, oh, he's not as interested in NASA, uh, and the mission of NASA. And when they pass him over for the moon missions after he's kind of basically created all the groundwork and set up the Apollo uh, program, that's odd too. Um, and he basically is like, well, they have no use for me. I'm out of here. And that's where he gets into archaeology and then starts uh, talking about UFOs. Now, um, let's get into a few odd headlines here and see if I can round all this out. There is a one of these guys who goes running after Spanish galleons, and he's had a successful career doing it, and he's got TV shows and all this other stuff. So around 2018, all these things were breaking about him. Treasure Hunter claims he found evidence of USOs, unidentified submerged objects, beneath the Bermuda Triangle, 2018. And they had a picture of it. It was covered, um, but you get some idea of what he was looking at. Now, it turns out that this guy had met Gordon Cooper on a on the Merv Griffin show, <laughs> of all things, somewhere in the 1980s. And um, he got office space in the same building. Now, uh, in the show, they talk, he, he mentions Cooper as if he's his best friend of all time. I don't know if there's really evidence for that. But nonetheless, what we do know is that he met him at this Merv Griffin event and that he shared office space in the same building. Um, sometimes for TV purposes, they amp up certain things like, you know, oh, his best friend left him a map, you know, 
didn't seem to me that way. Uh, and it's nothing against the researcher, uh, but it's just, you know, I know how TV operates, unfortunately. Um, now, before I get into him, I want to just round out the Cooper thing about the Olmecs and then what we say there about uh, this guy who's finding things in the hot zone will make a lot more sense. Quote, this is Cooper talking about the Olmecs. They lived in a large area bounded on the east by the Tuxla Mountains and by the Sierra Madre Mountains of the south, stretching to the Gulf of Mexico. It was a humid terrain with an abundance of water, lakes, rivers, and marshes. Olmec artifacts have been discovered only within the past century, the majority as recently as the mid-20th century. Even so, the Olmecs are considered the mother culture of civilization in Mesoamerica. Among other things, the Olmecs have been credited with developing writing in Mexico. They also developed the concept of zero and positional numbers 3,000 years before Europe did. The greatly advanced agricultural practices which allowed them to produce high yields. The Olmecs were the first of the four great civilization arising in the Americas. They rivaled Greece and Rome. The Olmec civilization lasted about 500 years longer than America. A lot of the hieroglyphics were found at our site because he found all these, uh, he found this incredible Olmec site. They closely resembled Egyptian hieroglyphics, but they were Olmec syllabic signs used to make pictures. Now, he, he makes the combination there to images that look like Egyptian hieroglyphics. That little story I mentioned about Paulina Zelitsky, the oceanographer who discovers a city off the coast of Cuba, and again, off the western tip of Cuba, which is kind of interesting, because there's a little story back there about Thomas Townsend Brown, and Thomas Townsend Brown would go every year and take off and say to his wife, I'm going with Robert Sarbarker, <laughs> the physicist on the level of Oppenheimer who revealed uh, in 1950s and 1980s the UFO file. The second time around, I think they bumped him off for it. Um, but he would say, we're, we're taken off for a month. It turns out that he was going to Cuba, San Antonio, Cuba. That's what his daughter told me. Now. This is very interesting because um, San Antonio, Cuba is right near the site where Polina Zelitsky finds the city off of Cuba. So they may have been studying that site. Or when I asked her, I said, is there anything else about San Antonio? And she said, well, you know, he, he loved this white sand. He studied this white sand that they have there. As a matter of fact, that white sand goes right off of Cuba under the water. And so when you're looking ruins under there you'll see all this white sand underneath um so that got me thinking a lot and then if you go back into les hemingway you'll hear that he reports in the 1950s flying over the western tip of cuba and seeing a city well uh, underwater now paulina zelitsky who was ukrainian and was originally under the Soviet Union when she went to Cuba first, defected to Canada. And um, she went through a series of trials and things. But then about 20 years after all that, Castro gets in touch with her and says, you know, you're, 
your company does the, all this underwater stuff. I want you to search off the coast of Cuba for, get ready, Spanish galleons. Now, remember that Spanish galleons, which are the incredible object of desire for underwater uh, explorers, for the treasure hunters, but it also is a code used for, if you're looking for something else like ruins in the hot zone, you just say Spanish galleons. And I found it over and over and over again, like with the Cooper story. Now, what happens is Polina Zalitsky does this work and right about the year 2000 discovers this incredible, what she calls metropolis. And it has pyramids and it has temples and all the rest right off the coast of Cuba. And the story hits in the mainstream because originally it's reported in the Cuban media. It gets around before anybody can do anything about it. Later, they'll try to call it into question and do all these things. But what she does, she sends a submersible down there and it takes pictures of these, this whole track of temples and things. And those pictures are quite remarkable. But what she says when she's interviewed about it is, and I've spoken to her, she's a very uh, nice person with a lot of information. There are some issues with bringing her on the show, unfortunately. Um, but what she does is she says, well, uh, you know, they're asking her, and they say, well, you're seeing hieroglyphics on these pyramids? Like, you know, what are the hieroglyphs? They're like Mayan hieroglyphics? And she says, no, 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 they're Egyptian. <laughs> now, this fits with um, the story that I mentioned earlier about this retired British intel agent who became this Atlantis expert and talked all about these different things. And he ends up, um, you know, doing the new version of Atlantis, the antediluvian world, the 19th century blockbuster by Ignatius Donnelly. He does the intro for that, re-releases it and does all this stuff. But he said there was a major intrigue around a temple of Isis there in international waters in the hot zone. So here she is saying, we have something Egyptian there off the coast. So uh, she's doing it for a while. And then one question I was able to ask her, who, who got you out of there? Because she was forced out of that research. And she said the Cuban Navy. So they wanted access to it themselves. And they didn't want this, you know, company, Canadian company in between them and what they, she had found. And there's a whole uh, intrigue there. As a matter of fact, when she went back, uh, she went to Mexico and they grabbed her and put her uh, in jail on a phony charge, kept her there for a little while until, you know, they were like, all right, you, know, you can go, but you watch it, you know, with your hot zone stories. And she was out of there and back to Canada. Now, uh, and I don't blame her basically for not wanting to be so involved with that story, although I think it is the big breakthrough story that's been covered up and I don't think the independent research media world has done a good job with that one. I've tried to bring that, that story along. It's crucial in my opinion. Um, but now we can see Western tip of Cuba. T.T. Brown is down there. She's finding a Western city. You know, Ernest Hemingway's brother is there. We've got a massive, and I mean a massive, uh, thing going on in relation to the hot zone. So the missions that JFK sends Gordon Cooper up there are staring directly down at the hot zone and how this relates later to, you know, Cooper finding as soon as he leaves NASA, all these Olmec ruins, for example, in Mexico, that's one thing. But what else was he looking at? 
and the whole treasure maps with coordinates that he supposedly left behind that this researcher, you know, who had shared an office with him and stuff, had the maps of these things. They made the Cooper's Treasures book uh, series about it. Uh, and they found very interesting things. But one of the things that this researcher comes forward with is he says, oh, yeah, I think I've found basically a flying saucer. I think I've found a UFO right there in the hot zone. And, uh, but he's using the coordinates where supposedly Cooper said there are Spanish galleons. So uh, Cooper may have been looking down there and seeing ancient ruins, or there could have been a craft down there, a downed craft. So this, again, brings us into the intrigue in the hot zone. Now, the hot zone has political intrigues with everyone from the Chinese, the Venezuelans, the Cubans, Mexico government, the Americans, drug smugglers, Colombians. You get everything in the hot zone all the time. This other thing, though, this gets us into a totally different track. And that's the piece that's been missing. I have more with Cooper uh, that we're going to get into, and I'm going to round that out. But before I go any further, I'm going to turn it over to Miss Olivia and her questions to keep us on kind of schedule, although we're already running late. You're up. Okay. Joseph says, hmm, it would be interesting to know if the Cuban DGI had any indication of the USA or anyone else suppressing that story. Oh, yeah. Um, well, what's interesting is it looks like the Cubans got around to suppressing it themselves. That's the thing about throwing Zelitsky off the job because I always wondered who had taken her off after she had uh, done these incredible things and got more. She got photographs. She had scientific material for this. You know, a lot of the stories that you hear is a pilot saw something after a hurricane and the sand wiped back up. They can't see it, but they're trying to locate it. You hear tons of those stories. But how often do you hear a scientific group went down there, saw a metropolis, took pictures, saw hieroglyphs? <laughs> And then they show the pictures. I mean, that's a slam dunk story. It's scientific, you know, you can't get around it. So you've got an advanced civilization operating that was underwater. You know, that changes history entirely. They didn't want to deal with that until they were ready. You know, when I talk, I've talked about this too, which is, um, UFO disclosure operations by intelligence forces inside the government. They're not only going to try to spin that story. You know, but the origin story around Atlantis, you're going to have Atlantis disclosure and you're going to have all the same CIA people coming in and then you'll have whistleblowers around it. They're going to roll their own guys out. You have to be very careful in that minefield of Atlantis disclosure and the people that have left the incredible track for us to follow all come from that mystery school tradition uh, and the public mystery schools. Anthroposophy, the Casey work, the Gurdjieff work, uh, theosophy, Blavatsky, it's, it's all there. They've left it for us. They've given us the indications, which gets us completely outside of this realm of just relying on, you know, the CIA has decided to change the origin story. Oh, you know, we're really from Mars. <laughs> and you can see that coming. And, uh, that gets us to the work of Gigi Young, who's, who's done remarkable things about that Mars God. Uh, myth, which is so deep inside of these groups. Yes. Igmu2 wants to know, are the pics still available? Yeah, they are. I've shown them. If you, uh, we have a hot zone playlist there right on our YouTube page or at darkjournalist.com. And, um, 
we show the, the photos there on multiple occasions. I might, uh, I'll, I'll, what I'll do with our Twitter account, um, cause this is X. That's not X. This is X. That's Twitter. Uh, <laughs> they, um, we'll, we'll post, we'll post Zelitsky's find and, um, you know, it may be time for another conversation <laughs> with her as well. Uh, okay. You go ahead. You can fire away okay. and I'll keep putting things together. Uh, Fighter says, any suspicions about the passing of hot zone expert Carmen Bolter just a little over a year ago? Well, and I what talk. happened to her latest documentary also? Look, um, Carmen was a, uh, a, like a remarkable Egyptian expert. She had something, um, you know, she was there in Egypt and she had a little, kind of uh, group, they, they were called the Hall of Records group, in 1977. So you see, she was there for 40 years. She knew all about it. She led tours there. She did The Pyramid Code, which was a popular Netflix series around 2008. She knew the original keeper, Hakim, of the Giza Plateau. So she knew all the kind of family lore, secrets. She told me a remarkable story uh, about one of those people who were guarding the plateau who led her to a tomb where the person of the tomb that she was looking at was over 10 feet tall. And that never came out. I don't know whatever happened to that. In terms uh, of what she was working on before she uh, died unexpectedly, it was a terrible shock. And um, I was talking with her, and she she knew all about the hot zone, and you know, we talked at length about her discoveries. We talked about doing a tour of the hot zone. This was in, I want to say 2018, 2019, right before uh, she passed away. This was very, very unbelievable timing. She had worked, she'd gone around the world shooting this new Atlantis documentary. She was very excited about it. She was working with a couple who were editing it. I heard from them at some point or someone associated with them a few years ago. I haven't heard anything from anybody about this of late. I would like to hear about the people who have it and maybe it is difficult to get off the ground, but um, she, she had some remarkable things there and she, um, she's somebody who understood and gave me inspiration and ideas about what the hot zone was all about. And uh, whenever we would finish those episodes, she was always the first person I would get an email from. <laughs> so she was there and she was there in Spain uh, watching. A remarkable, remarkable woman with an incredible legacy that um, maybe, maybe there's more for us to see there. I hope that her documentary series can come out. I, I understand that it's in the hands of her family at this point. Uh, although there was a couple who were helping her and she was so enthusiastic about the work that they were doing. And um, she sent me some, uh, not clips, but uh, some things that she had done screenshots of about it. And so she was incredibly uh, jazzed about the whole thing. Just remarkable. Um, a quick thing about our friend Cooper falling into this kind of incredible thing of leaving NASA and then finding these ruins, <laughs> stumbling across history. 
This is uh, from Leap of Faith, which an astronaut's journey into the unknown, Gordon Cooper. During my final year with NASA, I became involved in a different kind of adventure, undersea treasure hunting in Mexico. I was a partner in the privately financed venture and helped raise money for the expedition. It was well organized until things started to go wrong. With that, I had lots of experience. Archives in Spain had been researched and descriptions found of three mid-17th century treasure-laden Spanish galleons that had been tracking northward in the Gulf of Mexico, heading up the eastern coast of Mexico. And he goes into this thing about Spanish galleons. I've decided that almost all the talk about Spanish galleons relates directly to these ancient ruins. And that's the way you can read the steganography when people like Cooper, who are under levels and layers of secrecy, are trying to get messages out. Um, and I think you can take the story, like any good steganography, as the surface story that it is. But if you want a deeper level, <laughs> it's available there. Um, so... What he says is he was remarkable. It was remarkable because he decided to return to the site and then he had taken a Cessna over it and realized it was a huge Olmec site. And um, he decided, you know, we would just load an airplane or two and depart with all the bounty. But when we learned the age of the artifacts, we realized that what we found had nothing to do with mid-17th century Spain, and we knew we couldn't destroy ancient history. I contacted the Mexico government and was put in touch with the head of the National Archaeology or Archaeology Department, Pablo Bush Romero. I told him I'd meet him in the coastal town of Tampico in two weeks, that I had something important to show him. Together, we went back to the ruins, which the government knew nothing about. The Mexican government ended up putting some funding into this archaeological dig. The age of the ruins was confirmed. 3000 BC. So uh, on the record, without any input from the work that we do here, the X-Series, we've got astronaut Gordon Cooper finding this incredible Olmec civilization ruin site dated at 3000 BC, massive. And uh, so here we have that crisscross again, just like with Lindbergh, the people who are up there and that are connected into this uh, network both those who want to move the culture forward and the others who want to keep those types of discoveries for other reasons the archaeology wars that take place that's what we're talking about here we get right into it yes miss olivia uh jarn van uh wow curious that grenada was then later the focus of a u.s invasion i had never heard about cooper and grenada more research required and najat madri says why do i feel like the cuban missile crisis was one big charade for all this I did a, you know, we, we included the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs in an episode relating to it, tracking the sites. It's very interesting because um, there are caves uh, in Cuba that where some of the inscriptions are, cause, you know, show the cosmos at about 10,000, 12,000 B.C., and as a matter of fact, this wonderful photo of Polina Zelitsky looking out at these, the woman who discovered the city off Cuba. And this is before, there's a magazine article on her before she finds that stuff. And she's looking <laughs> at these caves with these wonderful mystical swirls and things. Um, so in my opinion, there are connections far beyond the 
regular tensions that are on the surface there. Just like when we look at the planet right now and we see where the tensions are, it's a lot deeper um, and the, the things that they're battling over and the tensions that are involved on the surface might be things where they could talk about, and they are real, like Taiwan situation, the Russia situation with Ukraine, Israel and Palestine. They're real civilizations, uh, they're, they're real circumstances, but they mask a deeper game that's going on. When you get to the hot zone, uh, that's where the game is really hidden because what's fascinating is aside from the work that we've put into this, there's never been a crisscross of the archaeological aspect with the political and geopolitical tensions in the area. When you crisscross those, you get to a totally different place. It starts to open up and not in a way that is just a self-fulfilling prophecy. But you can, you're able to track it. It makes a lot more sense. As a matter of fact, all the incredible tensions around Cuba are remarkable. That, you know, you would have to think there is some other aspect going on there. Because how would you have that much intrigue with one small little island off the coast of America? Um, so there's definitely a deeper aspect going on. The Bimini piece, we've yet to see because, you know, we've yet to see the full picture of it. But there are remarkable things there already, including the fact that it's quite a hot spot for what they call fireflies. Uh, you know, when I interviewed the widow of David Zink, who was an incredible, he used psychic archaeology in the 70s, um, but he was a great scientist and archaeologist who worked with Jacques Cousteau, and uh, she said all the natives call UFOs fireflies. There's so many. So when they got there, we are like, oh, yeah get ready for the fireflies. You're going to see all this UFO activity. So, um, and I understand that she passed away recently and uh, we have an, an episode with her, an interview with her uh, up there, which is just a wonderful piece of history. I recommend everyone listen to it. Yes. Uh, Roosevelt Media News. Cooper took pictures of UFOs that landed on a military base, but those photos disappeared. Oh yeah. Um, this is an incredible story. I have it here actually. And uh, to sum it up, I mean, were, were they pictures or Cooper, an actual video? Oh no, it was a film strip. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so it was a, a. He was looking. He looked at all the various frames. I want to say that Cooper is connected with X Share, and this is, you know, it, the roots of that are going into his work with John F. Kennedy. Mm. I think when we look at him in that story, he's trying again. He's saying, look, you know, this team had footage of this UFO landing on a dry lake bed, and they were my team. And he, when he was training in Europe in the early 50s, saw all this stuff. There's also a very odd footprint there in his early history, which is he has his first solo plane fight at, at 12 years old. You try that one on. Who's giving this guy the ability to fly at 12? <laughs> and then they say, oh, you know, he when he's young, he meets all these incredible luminaries and spends time with Amelia Earhart. And I'm like, Amelia Earhart disappeared in 1937. He was born in 1927. So in the period that they were giving it, basically make him nine years old. <laughs> so how do you have this nine-year-old? You know, there's there's some pattern here. They're prepping them early on for the incredible missions they're going to have. I don't know what it is. 
that doesn't just seem like some hype they would put in there. So, you know, we have this guy at nine years old meeting Amelia Earhart being schooled and then flying his own flight at 12. That's quite remarkable. And then, of course, being one of the uh, legendary astronauts in the Gemini program, a couple of other uh, pictures I came across to kind of punctuate the point. But this one, when he comes back from those May 1963 missions, President Kennedy meets him. And I think those discussions tell us would tell us a lot if we knew what they were. Um, and <laughs> I think that Kennedy and Cooper are both ex-share wanting to share this information. And so Cooper, when he gets around the UFO file in the 70s, he's he's bringing up a lot of very interesting things. And then we have the story, uh, including the fact that he writes to the United Nations, as I mentioned. But then we have the story of um, this treasure hunter and part of the treasure map. And the treasure hunter says, well, you know, one of the coordinates that he placed there, it wasn't a Spanish galleon, but it appears to be like maybe a USO under there. Uh, now, I've tried to track this story since it came out 2018. Now, the guy had Cooper's treasures. It ran for a couple of seasons. And that was all about Spanish galleons. But this story, which hit the papers and all the websites and everything in 2018, then... Uh, there was a follow-up in 2022 where it was still like, oh yeah, he's still talking about it, but they haven't, they haven't been able to get it, uh, but they still have these pictures of it. So I can't vouch for it as it were, but it seems to me to fit this pattern of Cooper in space and looking down from space and seeing these very unusual artifacts. Um, Daryl Miklos, of course, is the explorer and he's been using secret maps created by Gordon Cooper to find shipwrecks, Spanish galleons in the Caribbean. Uh, you know, very interesting. But uh, it is interesting when Cooper got interviewed about the UFO footage uh, and he had seen, like I said, flying information. He'd seen UFOs imitating when he was flying information training in Europe in the early 50s. UFOs would come up and do the same thing with them. <laughs> They'd be like, hey, we're flying in formation with you. So he knew there was some intelligence behind the crafts. He wondered about it a great deal. I have a very unusual twist to that story before we're done tonight. But what I want to say is that um, that footage in particular, he said, undisputed, like my team took it. They were the honest, you know, great team. A craft came down, landed on a dry lake bed, and we had the footage. He was ordered to send it to D.C. and the Central Intelligence Agency got their hands on it. He never heard of it again. And the guys interviewing him says, well, why didn't you try to get it? You know, why didn't you try to track it? And he said, it's classified. I had, you know, once the CIA took it, I had no access to it. What do you think? You know, so he knew he understood what they were doing uh, with this. And I do think that Cooper, um, if we follow his career closely, a little later, what are we looking at? UFO activity, UFO letters to the UN, working with the island of uh, Granada and the president there. And you're right, the person who mentioned that the Granada invasion happened, um, that happened under Reagan. But before that, uh, there had been this whole push 
to get this UFO secret out because the president of Granada said, we think a craft washed up on our beach. So he was a believer. And uh, then they had this whole weird coup, you know, Maurice Bishop and this other guy gets in there. And the Reagan administration comes in and there's a weird thing about the hospitals being taken over, <laughs> the hospitals being taken over by communists. So we send in our first ground troops into a situation since Vietnam War. And uh, that becomes a weird little situation. Um, and I, I would definitely say that uh, the Granada thing, the fact that Cooper is writing with the president of Granada and saying to the UN, you have to open up the UFO file, is highly significant. Yes, Miss Olivia. Um, Stephen Podesky, uh, Graham Hancock just said they have found many ruins of cities slash pyramids in the Amazon recently from LIDAR. Ray story, Graham Hancock pushes timelines further than academia and writes about Atlantis and the apocalypse too. What do you think of his latest timelines? Oh, Graham, you know, we had Graham up here in 2019. It was a remarkable uh, session we have, and that's available right here on this channel. It's a two-hour interview, covers everything, <laughs> Graham Hancock. And uh, we've had interviews with him in the past, and uh, he's a great guy, actually. I've, I've known, you know. He's a real gentleman. Yeah, no question about mm -hmm. it. Um, and I found him very informative on it. He's put out this remarkable America before book. And of course, very early on fingerprints of the gods, you know, just opening us up dramatically and all this. And he understood about the hall of records and everything else. I think that he has tried to make the Atlanta story more approachable by saying, well, look, you know, imagine then if you don't want to picture the Atlanteans being super sophisticated, just picture them kind of industrialized a la, you know, Western civilization in the 19th century. If you do that, you know, <laughs> at least you can get in that way. So he, he kind of offered these things. One of the most remarkable, uh, conversations that we had in person was about the serpent mound in Ohio. And, uh, I have a very unusual picture from an Indian tribe in Ohio and their recollections of this group of giants who are kind of really hard to deal with. Um, but in any case, he talked about standing there and during the, uh, you know, the incredible season, change of the seasons. And um, he was saying that the site was the site of a massive uh, asteroid crash and that the ancients always knew these sites and would set up the sacred site in relation to the fact of whether or not a meteorite had struck it because it changed the magnetic properties of the religious site. So the Serpent Mound in Ohio was one of those. That was one of those little things. You know, when you talk to, to Graham, you're going to get incredible gems like that. And uh, that was one of them. <laughs> Everyone, you're watching the Dark Journalist Show. This is X-Series episode 162, Secret NASA Missions in the Hot Zone. Atlantis, Two Eye in the Caribbean, Edgar Casey, Gordon Cooper, the Poseidians, <laughs> land rising off the east coast of America. Casey said it was happening. You don't hear much about land rising. You hear about climate change and water rising that's going to inundate the coasts. But are they hiding information about land rising? Is that part of the problem here? Uh, and you're also hiding ruins of an advanced civilization. Have those ruins been 
the subject of a very deadly uh, ping pong geopolitical match that's going on and how out of the loop are we? But of all these historical figures from John Lennon uh, to Ernest Hemingway, John F. Kennedy and others, have they all been involved <laughs> in some way or another, including Gordon Cooper? Yes. Tina Borich. Down in South America, there was a small stone shaped like a pyramid with the eye of Horus. And when you turned it over, it had a pre-Sanskrit symbol saying the son of man comes from Orion. Ask DJ. The son of man comes from Orion. Isn't that interesting? Um, you know, it, it's fascinating because it reminds me that I was looking into the origin of the Olmec name. And this is quite fascinating because the actual translation is people of rubber. <laughs> and uh, there are rubber trees there, the Olmecs, so, you know, the people of the rubber tree. Uh, well, those yoga postures are... Yes, I think they're incredibly telling. I actually, since I mentioned uh, the... Indian piece. I want to, this is it. This is from an Ohio tribe. And um, the illustration is, I think, 19th century. There we go. Uh, so obviously, <laughs> some of these uh, leftover Atlantean tribes are a little more difficult to deal with than others. This looks, Miss Olivia, like, what am I looking at? <laughs> <laughs> this looks like the trouble that the tribes people here are having, sending arrows after this thing. And, um, you know, these are the echoes of things like that Goliath. were taking place, a kind mm-hmm. of Goliath story back there. Um, when you get to some of the things around the Mormon story, are interesting if you look at them just in archaeological terms, including the, you know, the things about the um, very unusual stones and, uh, you know, the things that he was able to read. Um, but one of the things in that story is all about how the Mayans, you know, how the basically this group of Mormons crash landed into Mexico and they've spent a lot of time through Brigham Young University looking for proof of that story. And um, what's interesting to me is there's something to that story because those people who set up Joseph Smith and the story, the background of the story that forms the foundation of the Mormon Bible, um, they knew about this early group that came over here because they get strange support, oddly enough, from the Casey readings who suggests that one of the lost tribes of Israel, that sort of famous lost tribe, took off by boat and went directly across into the Mayan territories. And that's the same story that's told in the Mormon texts. Now, there's a lot of weird things about the Mormon text as well, but in that category, it's quite interesting. As well, yes. Uh, Jessica Rodriguez, um, what was the documentary with David Zink and his wife that was supposed to come out, and who else were they working with? What was it called? 
You can find Cousteau, uh, Jacques Cousteau. Now, Zinc died a while ago, but uh, his book, The Stones of Atlantis, is still out there. There was a renewed version of it sometime, I think, in 1991, 92. Um, and then he passed away. But um, Jones Inc. was around for the the 1970s expeditions, which was really when uh, David Zink was, was doing his best. And he's in a very interesting documentary that Jacques Cousteau did about Atlantis. And that's where I would go for, for some of that. We show some of those clips in uh, the interview we did with her. I do want to say that the intrigue in the hot zone extends to the Epstein-Maxwell uh case as well and thank you for bringing that up the sprawling pieces on that we've done three shows uh including the fact that gillane maxwell used the pseudonym janet atlantis uh it's all in the episodes that we did and so gillane in the hot zone uh she was there but one of the interesting things about that there's two interesting things about it if you go into it which is we have an episode called the Colonel in the hot zone, which is literally about Colonel Sanders and his family and the crisscross of Colonel Sanders daughter and a MIT professor scientist named Marvin Minsky who's one of the authors of artificial intelligence, very unusual guy. And uh, he was, you know, a heavy hitter right over here at MIT for many, many years. And, um, I highly recommend that episode and a lot of weird things happened when I was doing that research as well, including the fact that people from the Sanders family came forward and then, so, um, you know, they, they dropped off dramatically and cut off all contact and (laughs) it was quite unusual, uh, including some of the people that they, um, hired to help them find these ruins in the hot zone. But, um, she was remarkable. Uh, his, Colonel Sanders' daughter, and uh, her friendship with Marvin Minsky I found very interesting. So when I was going through the different cases, uh, there was a case against Prince Andrew related to Ghislaine Maxwell, and when I was reading it, there was somebody in there who was saying they were doing all this work to set up Alexandra Cousteau in this compromising situation, like have her in an island orgy or something like that. And I thought, okay, you know, there's enough weird scientists in this mix, you know, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, a lot of weird scientists in the mix with Epstein and Maxwell and all the political figures, et cetera. But why would they be after Alexandra Cousteau? And uh, when you really connect those dots, she is the inheritor of all the Atlantis explorations that Jacques Cousteau did in the hot zone. And that is information that they wanted and probably couldn't get from her would be my guess. And um, the other person that they were looking to get information and blackmail on was Marvin Minsky, who was the best friend of uh, Colonel Sanders' daughter. And uh, Marvin Minsky, the MIT professor, and what happened was for some reason or another, according to the testimony in that Prince Andrew trial, they weren't able to get it, but they were looking for it. So Minsky and his connection with Colonel Sanders' daughter, who's doing this search for Atlantis in the hot zone, and then Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein down there. Um, there's a deep, deep Atlantis, Belial uh, cult 
aspect to all of that, which if we just look at it for the salacious stories, we miss it dramatically. And um, because what they were up to, you know, we've got the blackmail on one side, but what was the actual object of some of the blackmail seemed over and over again to deal with scientific material. Yes. Relating to Atlantis and the hot sun. We get this question a lot. Andy B, who do you pay when you buy an ocean lot of water? <laughs> it depends. It depends on where you are. And uh, what's interesting is John Lennon had sought to do it. Uh, and he spent a lot of time in the Bahamas himself. And, uh, he was down in the hot zone a lot. What's interesting is he ended up buying an island off the coast of Ireland and, uh, they would sue that, uh, they would end up selling it after his death. But, um, you know, it's interesting to me because Lennon had a deep, deep history around searching for the Hall of Records, including a trip in 1978 during this period when he was retired with Yoko Ono in order to find the Hall of Records. And you see all those pictures of him at the Sphinx and everything else. They're working with somebody and an expedition. And what happens is, and Yoko is always welcome to come on the show and correct me on this, but apparently what happens is they find a sarcophagus and are able to smuggle it out of Egypt. And it's there at the Dakota. Uh, for a long time. And now Yoko's moved out of the Dakota now, but there's a big, major Atlantis overlap with um, John Lennon. And you'll find May Pang saying that one of Casey's uh, books, uh, Edgar Casey and Atlantis, was always, you know, John was always reading it, any chance he could get. And um, so there's a deep piece around celebrities and politicians and others around this Casey hot zone aspect. There's a great awareness in certain circles about it. They were a little ahead of their time, you know, but yes. <laughs> sorry. Boober fighter says, <laughs> sorry. Yoko is a bad egg. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, hey, Yoko's, a, you know, she can come on the show anytime. Um, I want to tell you about another, person who was uh, working a very interesting intelligence route down there in the hot zone and would later become president of the United States. That is intelligence officer John F. Kennedy down there in Key West. And, uh, you know, it's interesting with President Kennedy because uh, he goes in with a great deal of knowledge relating to the UFO file, as we've mentioned. But Kennedy has an incredible crisscross um, with Hemingway. And as we know, uh, all the things that Hemingway was doing based on this Casey tie-in to find ruins there in the hot zone and the efforts that President Kennedy made to smuggle that out of Cuba uh, are completely on record. And that's why we have the largest collection of Ernest Hemingway memorabilia, letters, books, everything there at the Kennedy Library in Boston, Massachusetts. A uh, wonderful picture there with Cooper in the background, but that's Jackie with John Jr. And in the background, <laughs> there's a shot there. It's just one of those historical catches of uh, our good friend, astronaut Gordon Cooper. Yes, I love that Olivia. smile. <laughs> um, what do you got? Okay, so... Where do I want to go? 
Michael Tessier, any photo of Piedras Negras stones as the emblem of Tuai? Could it be a Stargate symbol? Yeah, I've shown the pictures um, before, and uh, they are in Pawgate, part one and part two. They're both available on this channel or on darkjournalist.com, and um, they're right. They're right in the heart of it, along with the picture of the um, Mexican Sphinx, which is important because Casey, when he's talking about the fleeing Atlanteans with their technology and with their knowledge, what they decide to do is place the Hall of Records in three different places, and the records are all one. One of those places is under the right paw of the Sphinx and relates to a channel that gets you to a pyramid that is directly between the Sphinx and the river. So a lot of people think you go directly under the paw and the Hall of Records is there. Actually, it brings you to an entryway. And uh, this is, I think, what has confounded a lot of the people uh, in relation to Casey's work who try to hijack it. And I talked about Giza Gate <laughs> before, which is Zahi Hawass and Mark Lehner. And... Um, there are a lot of things on the record there about them using information that Casey provided about the Hall of Records to go lurking in the background while totally dismissing the story in public, even though we know that Lehner wrote his own books about, you know, uh, when he was younger, wrote books about Casey and the Hall of Records. So when he becomes the custodian of the Giza Plateau, he throws, you know, throws up roadblocks for guys like Robert Schock and Graham Hancock who are doing good investigations proving basically essentially proving Casey's theories that it's a much older complex. Um, so we need to keep that in mind that there's a political intrigue directly around the archaeological wars dealing with the hall of records. Yes. Darcy Edmonds, Bibini is mag magnetite rock. It is a power source. The Olmec heads, their foreheads are magnetic. Nanette Christ, they allegedly, the Olmecs, used mind control on the people, thus the magnetic helmets and amplifiers on the Olmec heads. That is very interesting. Uh, they certainly are unusual uh, for that part of the world. And I think that uh, the fact that their culture is that advanced gives us a hint that we may have a leftover here of a group that was heavily influenced by the fleeing Atlanteans. It's interesting you mentioned the stone. One of the Olmec stones that they found that was largely magnetized, this is one of the Cooper finds here. And the magnetic readings on the stone were off the charts. But it is interesting because the magnetite uh, shows up in unusual sites. It shows up when they're doing the Mason-Dixon line uh, as well. <laughs> And I find that story of the Mason-Dixon line and setting up that whole scientific expedition to also be an early chapter of the strangeness going on here. I promised that I would show, so it's a NASA professor who in the 70s and 80s was retired and was like, you know, I've heard Casey talk in these ratings about the two-eyed stone. I'm going to take a crack at this. And this is what he decided Based on Casey's description, the two eyes stone actually look like six-sided cylindrical crystal. And um, he found Casey's description of it highly scientific. <laughs> and uh, 
his work was uh, was very interesting. There was something that uh, there were a few discoveries as well by a um, Florida archaeologist that I put on the record. Um, but before we get to those, why don't we keep going? And also, I want to make sure. So we'll take a few more questions, and I want to make sure that we get to the strange story of Gordon Cooper and a woman named Mallory. Go ahead. Okay. Steve Hess, did the Atlanteans gone wrong cause the biblical great flood? Um, yes. Actually, in the Casey readings, he talks about the great flood and how it is um, recorded. It's the second of three major destructions in Atlantean history. So he has the first at 50,000 B.C., the second at 28,000 B.C., and the final mega blowout, 10,500 B.C. The second, the Great Flood, um, as recorded in the Bible, has an origin story, and, and people have studied this. When you read some of the early Sumerian origin stories that are the early version of Genesis before it makes the, the biblical version, um, it's, it's exactly the same story. So the, the story is much older, of course, and it was, it was placed there. It was culture to culture to culture. And, um, as we know, every major culture has a great flood story. So there was some kind of worldwide devastation that took place. And, um, the, the flood, the great flood as recorded with Noah and all these figures, you know, Casey puts on the record that Noah is a historical figure and he actually gives him other incarnations, including as uh, not Elijah, but Elisha, who's in the Elijah story and does that fantastic move when uh, Elijah's heading into the chariot of fire and looks back at him and says, okay, you know, <laughs> I want to make sure you're okay. Just ask me anything and I'll grant it to you, you know, and he says, okay, great. I want a double portion of your spirit on me right now. <laughs> Basically, give me all your abilities plus two. And Elijah looks back at him and says, well, you know, what you're asking is really hard, but because I said I'd do it, I'll do it. <laughs> and he gives it to him. And it's interesting because um, Elisha ends up doing some unusual things, including bringing someone back to life even before the New Testament. So there's some quite fascinating miracle aspect associated with him. Um, and Casey has him showing up as uh, in a different lifetime. That, that's Noah again. And then he has him later as Thomas Campbell, who is a religious figure. So we have these people reappearing on the scene through various incarnations. Yes. Amarillo Gunrunners, what is the sanction story for the Mayan-looking structures at the bottom of the Caribbean? The sanction story? Yeah, the official story. Oh, um, they basically, in in terms of Polina Zalitsky's story, for a while, the New York Times kind of, those type, National Geographic, had to go along with it and try to figure out how can we debunk this, you know. And because the um, Castro government had removed her, there was no way to get sort of honest detail about the thing anymore. And 
they said, oh, you know, what it must have been, it was just basically um, some Cold War missile silo that they threw overboard, and there it was. It doesn't match her photos of pyramids or the metropolis description or the fact that she was using submersibles to get the information. Uh, none of that stuff makes any sense. And what's interesting is some of the um, other kind of archaeologists on the alternative archaeology side went along with that because in a way, and I hate to point this out, but there was a kind of jealousy there going on for Zelitsky and what she had found. She basically had blown everybody away with her discovery. And um, there was, you know, when it came down to the mainstream media kind of dismissing her story and getting her out of there, there were alternative people who were, you know, went back to their soapboxes and, uh, you know, completely forgot about it, which was absurd. There's been a few absurd things, um, you know, <laughs> the whole thing about the October 13th, 2010 UFO sighting over in New York. I mean, I know the story well. I've brought it forward. For some reason, it's passed over. It doesn't make any sense to me in the UFO community. So alternative researchers, they just don't know about it or they don't want to talk about it. Paulina Zelitsky, on the archaeology side, you know, what are you waiting for? <laughs> There's your story. Atlantis is off the western tip of Cuba. Move toward that direction. Like, you have her data. It's been on the record for 20 years. Like, I don't understand uh, how these things, which are so easily provable, you know, there's a kind of a weird amnesia that goes on. And uh, I've mentioned this in relation to Douglas Caddy and what he put on the record about E. Howard Hunt. That's how we get Kennedy assassinated over the UFO file. It is through Caddy's confession on this program. Douglas Caddy's a Watergate lawyer, you know. I mean, how much more of a historical figure do you need? And he says to his friend in private before he goes to prison, Kennedy was assassinated over the UFO file because he was going to share it with the Russians. You know, these are the things, these are the aspects and the streams that the X series has put on the table and will study. Uh, we're going forward on that track. I don't know what these other marketing tracks are about or like Gaia TV and things. They're like space arcs <laughs> and all this. Uh, you know, you don't have any, you have nothing, you know, I don't understand why don't you don't work with what's actual, you know, work with some real stuff. And, um, even when once in a while, something like Gaia pops up their head and, you know, rips off this show or some <laughs> other good stuff like Gigi Young's work, they don't do it right, you know, and it's because they don't have the deep knowledge. And I think what they're looking for is a kind of superficial buzz about, you know, oh, we have some secret, you know, or, you know, oh, we found some aliens in South America. I mean, you, you've you got to, you have things on the record that are fantastic, phenomenal. Look at the Casey work that we're talking about tonight. Some of the greatest work brought together in a body of uh, research. You know, it's psychic research, granted, but it's been proven very fascinating over time. And he was doing it 100 years ago. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's something amiss in there, there's a lack of it's laziness. <laughs> it's a lack of careful precision. I'll put it to that way. Everyone, you're watching the Dark Journalist show. Okay, secret NASA missions in the hot sun. Atlantis, two eye in the Caribbean. We'll take a couple more questions. I'll I'll reveal the mystery Valerie woman and then we will call it a night. Go for it. Okay. 
Uh, Adam Huglow, uh, did the two-eye stone run the pyramids like a grid? And Larry Jackson, could the two-eye stone slash crystal be one of the crystals from one of the Giza pyramids? Um, well, let's get a couple of things on the record about the two-eye stone. So it ran the civilization. That was their power source, the same way that we run our civilization now with energy. That's how the Atlanteans ran it. Um, and this is quite fascinating. Um, the two-eye stone was unintentionally tuned too high originally. This is where the problem came from. And it was during this period, 50,722 BC, according to Casey. He names the date because finally someone asked him the exact date. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes you look at those readings, and you're like, ask the question, ask the question. Um, but they did. And he said that they sent out what was basically like a death ray from these various centers to eliminate these beasts that were overrunning Atlantis. And it sounds to me like he's speaking of dinosaurs. We talked about that incredible find in Mexico of all these Mayans playing with dinosaurs, you know, <laughs> where do you get that from? Um, and Charles Hapgood was in the heart of that archeological explanation. It was not a fly by night thing. So there's something strange about how we're given the history. And I remember that we get the actual dating from uh, someone in the Alvarez family who were the same people who gave us the spin on the UFO file. So I don't, I don't trust the traditional dating around dinosaurs and things. But in the Casey work, he's got them 50,722 BC fighting off these massive beasts. And, you know, if that's when the dinosaurs were eliminated, then how do you get 65 million BC versus 50,000 BC? Something really amiss in there. Um, but so Casey's giving us those dates. Later, what happens is the um, the Atlanteans, the Belial group splits the island into three by misusing the two-eye stone. This is where they're attacking their counterparts, who are the Amelius group, and they're battling them uh, using the two-eye stone as a weapon. And you can imagine the types of devastating effects that you're getting from the two-eye stone turned from its original purpose into this large-scale crystal laser um, mayhem maker. <laughs> uh, you know, that's why Casey says it became referred to as the terrible mighty crystal, which there is an echo in the Bible of this term, the terrible mighty crystal. So there's some overlap that's left over. And uh, when we get into that two-eye stone, what we need to understand is it's either an incredible unit for spiritual attunement where you can get messages from the saintly realm, or you can use it directly to nuke, <laughs> nuclear annihilate your enemies. Um, and so when they split the island into three, then the uh, Belial group becomes more warlike, and the final battle, as it were, takes place right in that area where Bimini is now. Uh, so the Casey story is that the sons of Belial and the Amelius group had it out there. And the ruins and what remains are is everything that's in the hot zone. 
and um, you know, you had the earth changes and everything moved to where it was now. What's interesting is he talks about Iltar, who was the leader of the Law of One Amelia's group. And Iltar, with about a hundred of his followers, goes into Mexico and recreates the civilization. Uh, and he sets up another version of the Hall of Records and they have the pyramid making culture, the whole thing. And then, um, what happens is another earth shift takes place. And I believe this is where the hot zone really goes under because I think Atlantis goes under, but this area in the hot zone goes under afterwards. I think it was around for a while. That's why you have this Cuba, Yucatan, Florida hot zone piece. I think that civilization is a mixture of Egyptians and Atlanteans. So it, it gets very, very deep there. But if you follow Casey, you can sort of start to put that together. And Iltar decides, you know, this, uh, this is, this is very difficult. After the land masses change again, he's in Yucatan. He sets up another civilization there. And then they have stragglers coming in from different sides. And there are the leftover stragglers from Mu. And you get all of these people cramming into Mexico at that point. So Iltar takes all of his followers and they become the mound builders in America. That's the Casey story about what happened to the fleeing Atlanteans who had battled. And, you know, they stood for the right principles against the sons of Belial. But the sons of Belial won, yes, but they also took everything down with them. (laughs) Everyone, you're watching the Dark Journalist show. This is secret NASA missions in the Hots and Atlantis, Edgar Casey, 2i in the Caribbean. I'll take one more question. I'll read one more thing and then we're done for tonight. It's great to have everyone here uh, with us. And uh, like I said, this is the last X series episode for 2023. We're still going to have some interviews um, coming up for you later this month, but uh it's great to have everyone here in the ideas room and the X series will return in early January. Uh, I want to remind you if you're new here to go to darkjournalist.com and sign up for our newsletter. It's a free newsletter. It keeps us in touch around the censorship and the censorship is how we got to this fantastic uh, place tonight talking with you about Gordon Cooper because we had originally done an episode um, in 2020 on Gordon Cooper in the hot zone. And uh, we had buffered it in other Hot Zone episodes since then, but this is really recapturing it with all the new research as well. And a very important chapter left out. All right, Valerie is the name of the very mysterious woman who comes into Gordon Cooper's life, and I want to cover her, uh, and then you can choose your last question. Okay. <laughs> How are you doing over there? I, I'm desperately choosing between two questions. (laughs) Okay, you can ask them both then. Um, All right, here we go. A couple of things about Valerie. When he's disillusioned and uh, he joins Walt Disney, he's some kind of director. They're, They're asking him, hey, we're setting up all these different things. And he becomes a consultant for Walt Disney, Gordon Cooper. What? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that? well, remember that also Walt Disney was very into UFOs and even did a UFO documentary in the seventies. Um, now this is pretty wild because this woman comes along out of nowhere and she's, it turns out she's related 
activity-wise to Dr. Paharich. That's Andre Paharich. And this is going to open up a whole thing. So we're going to do a solo episode on Valerie and Puharich and that whole piece. But Puharich has been around. He was involved with the Nine, uh, which was that 50s group that was dealing, you know, they were channeling this Egyptian spaceship. I mean, it was really far out. But some of the highest, most elite families were involved with the channeling of the Nine. And it is a very unusual story. He also brought forward people like Yuri Gela and others. Uh, so he's he was definitely someone very clued in on all of this. So um, what happens is, and I'm just going to give us a little bit of a teaser here uh, on Valerie. We will follow up more on this. By the way, this is the uh, emblem that I got from the Florida work on Bloomfield. Uh, who was the archaeologist in Florida. I wanted to show this image. Um, and this is off. Now, people often run over the cliff with this thing since we put it out there. That, I believe, is a representation of the two-eye stone. It was from an expedition in Florida where they found this, and then later they found it over, uh, I think, in Missouri. Now, um Bloomfield himself had an interesting background as his mom was the woman who financed John Keeley and some of the early work of Tesla. So uh, his work and his very extraordinary early work, which seems like it's going to be an exercise in boredom because it's so detailed, but every once in a while in there, you're going to find these gems. Um, but I think we're relating directly there to the two eye stone with this image. All right, so um, our friend Cooper, at this point in time, meets this woman named Valerie, and he goes to pains to kind of hide her identity and also put it on the record, so it's an interesting mix. She worked in the Ford White House, and her role must have been around NASA. And what she says is, we need your help because we know there are other civilizations out there and there's space-faring civilizations that are visiting us and we need a brain trust, basically, to go after this. And by the way, a lot of the people that we're working with are getting telepathic messages from these aliens. So um, she said that she spent time growing up as a space kid and that the government had looked for these children who could use their telepathic powers to interface with aliens. Here's, this comes directly out of Gordon's autobiography. Valerie described the space kids as long time tuned in. They spent time in perfecting their telepathic powers. Valerie went on, telepathic powers are part of human evolution, she said. The potential lies in every human being. You just need to eliminate the distraction. They also practice remote viewing in which the power of the subconscious is used to travel to different times and places and see actual events. Uh, this biography is from 91, so, you know, the remote viewing thing had, had really, it was just starting to bubble up. People were starting to just hear about it. The military and the CIA had secretly become involved in remote viewing research. And unbeknownst to Valerie at the time, were funneling money 
into Paharic's private research group in the furtherance of what became known as psychic espionage. The CIA's program known as Stargate would not become public until 15 years later, and only when the former government remote viewers began to come forth with their stories in articles and books. Of course, we've had Russell Targ on this program who was uh, who headed up the remote viewing program and told us remarkable things. He has a new book out. We're going to have him back uh, here to, to go in in great detail. Uh, but there is someone who really understands the remote viewing side mixed with, for example, the mystery school piece. Uh, interestingly enough, he was at the Soul uh, Foundation uh, thing that Gary Nolan and all those people <laughs> put it on. And he was asking real questions, and I'm telling you, they were uncomfortable because he was like, you know, what are you guys doing with the UFO thing? Why are you putting out stuff like the Tic Tac? And, you know, I've seen, you know, from the CIA in the 80s, real pictures of UFOs. Why are you, what are you doing with this junk? So he know he's very uh, hip to everything that they're doing. He dealt with the CIA and also, uh, you know, them eliminating Pat Price, who was one of his top psychics because he had gotten too close to the ufo file so guys like targ are very valuable in the middle of all this uh, i want to suggest because they've seen the remote viewing aspect the cia aspect and they know what a false uh, ufo disclosure cia ufo threat program looks like but anyway let's let's round this out uh psychic espionage okay Poharich conducted experiments in a Faraday cage named after Michael Faraday, who in 1831 rocked the scientific world with his discovery that magnetism could produce electricity. The cage was a rectangular metal box, approximately eight by eight by 12 feet, which was lined with copper and placed on insulated supports. Inside was a complete electrical vacuum, no electronic electromagnetic waves. Um, so, he talks then about how she met Puharich and she, she sought Puharich out and she said, I'm one of your space kids. Huh. So she was one of the children that they trained early on and she came back. He invited her to visit his lab and soon came to value her telepathic abilities as well as her administrative skills. He hired her as a research assistant in 1977. Her job was to identify, document and test many of the space kids who came for regular evaluation to the private lab at Paharich's estate compound. I learned that Dr. Paharich was for real, this is Cooper now, and was doing research on contract for the U.S. government, even the military. Valerie arranged for us to meet in Washington, and I found him to be brilliant. We discussed electromagnetic energy and talked for an hour about various advanced propulsion systems for space travel. Paharich was a dicey character, but he was a charmer, and he, he certainly had a lot of clout behind him. Him being part of this, like, I want to you know, have the UFO disclosure in the late 70s, Cooper saw him as somebody, okay, this is a guy who can do it. Baharich had pre- previously discovered a young Israeli who had gone on to fame, Yuri Geller. Like Geller, Valerie was able to bend utensils with mind power. I wasn't too good with spoons, she told me. At one of our lunches, laughing, I specialized in forks. I wanted to know how it worked. Anyone can learn how to do it, she said. It's just mind over matter. Uh, so Cooper asks, says, show me how you do it. So rubbing her index and middle fingers over the hump part of the fork, but not touching the metal, she closed her eyes. Within 30 seconds, the fork began to bend. Now, you remember, this is the famous thing that Geller could do, right? Uh, 
And they kept moving the prongs and nearly touched the handle. This was the restaurant's fork, not Valerie's. And she accomplished it. Now, um, what's interesting is they involve Cooper. They're getting these messages from somewhere telepathically through this network. And one of the people in the network, he meets all of these other scientists who are in this network who are getting these telepathic messages from extraterrestrials. And they tell him that there is a weakness in the heating module in one of the Challenger spaceships. And uh, they say, can you get this message to those to NASA and can you do this for us? And he goes out on a limb and goes to NASA and says, don't ask me how I know this, but <laughs> basically I need you to double check everything associated with the Challenger and the heating module. And they go in and according to Cooper on the record, he says that they do find it. And so he becomes convinced that Valerie and what she's doing, uh, you know, he's like this incredibly beautiful woman and her advanced psychic abilities and all this stuff and her network of impressive scientists are involved in basically, you know, forget about the idea of UFOs coming in here or whatever, they're using people as radio stations for their telepathic messages. And um, she said, uh, Cooper said that she was working at the highest levels of government. So she's working on, say, a presidential level. She came out of the White House. Now, um, that part of the story, more things happen in relation to Valerie, but we never really get the final bit on her. And she's managed to stay pretty low key, although uh, I discovered that she's still with us. And Oh, interesting. What's interesting here, if I can find it, is that she's not somebody that you can find online and find her picture and stuff. I found a picture that she's in. Uh, and so, Miss Olivia, why don't you keep rolling while I find it? David Dunway says, oh, Valerie Remote hacked a NASA moon mission. <laughs> it's true, actually. Uh, great shot of Cooper there in his classic Gemini days. Uh, <laughs> all right, we'll take another question and see if I can find Valerie. Okay, so there's a whole bunch. Whenever we talk about the two eye stone, people go crazy talking about crystals, right? Okay. David Donaway says, crystals grown in microgravity are often larger and more well-ordered than earth-grown crystals. Mm. Is it possible that crystals grown in space, I love this, could change possibilities for telecommunications and computing on Earth and development of new materials? Happy Hermit 3D responds, if I understand crystals grown in space will have highly regular lattices, pure because no gravitational field affecting them as they form, David Dunaway comes back. Yes, it seems that growing crystals in space, perhaps with nanomaterial matrices, could be a whole new way forward for material science. This wow. is you something. Guys, you, yeah. yeah. And you guys, let me tell you, you were listening to the last interview <laughs> with Dr. <laughs> Farrell because he went in great detail into exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and he actually suggested that uh, those Atlanteans would know that you would get a totally different uh, ability of crystal by growing it in space. So there's a whole conversation on that in my last interview uh, with Dr. Farrell where he tackles it. 
And uh, that was one of those mine jumpers. But well, you, uh, you definitely are on the right track. What is your opinion about the two-eye stone being grown in outer space? Well, um, yeah, I think it's quite possible. I think the... Um, I think there's something very special about how Casey is using the two-eye stone here because the Atlanteans develop it and then they use it as an interface with the outer spheres. So um, I believe that what we're looking at is some kind of very, um, you know, something that you could almost say is is alive and can constitute a kind of a communication source of life because it seems like the two eye stone is not only a center for power and um, you know, for powering a civilization, but it's there for your spiritual uplift. And so I've made the comparison before, you know, basically you're open your laptop and your spiritual ascended master is there giving you your plan for the day. I mean, that's what they use the technology for in that period, according to Casey. And it gets very interesting because he also talks about how they use the two-eye stone to regenerate their tissues and live much, 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 much longer than we do. So, uh, and this is a process that Rata, the Atlantean priest who comes into Egypt, he takes, you know, he takes this on himself. And when he returns, he's a young man again after, you know, serving many years in exile. So, Something, I think, very powerful sitting in the heart of the story of the Two-Eyed Stone. It's still the great mystery, and that's what the trouble is all about when we get around this subject, because you're dealing not only with a spiritual interface, but an incredible power source. And so it has this kind of dual ability. And with that, Miss Olivia, we'll take your last question. Okay, so... (laughs) All right, I'll go to this. Channeling the Heart, Barb Joyce. With the death of Kissinger, will the Nixon letter be discovered and will it reveal some ex-info? I thought that myself when Kissinger died. I thought, you know, Robert Merritt's story about the person he delivered the Nixon time capsule letter to, you know, the copy, one in the White House and one with Kissinger. Uh, it makes you wonder, but unfortunately, I think that those people, you know, the Kissingers, the Schwabs, seems like the generations that came up after Kissinger were even more demented <laughs> on that line, if that's possible. Um, but there it was. Okay, somewhere in this picture, I would like to point out who, but somewhere Valerie, the space intelligence woman, is in there. And I'm going to uh, do a little more research to get a shot of Valerie. But um, I think that she is kind of an important peace and all this and i think the track of the work that she was doing is left kind of on the cutting room floor of history and gordon as part of x year cooper's giving us that little hint um and of course discovered in nineveh this very unusual very very interesting copper plate which gives us some indication something uh astrological an advanced formula of the cosmos is in there. And with that, Miss Olivia, we are finished All with right. tonight's special presentation, <laughs> Secret National Missions in the Hot Zone, Gordon Cooper, Atlantis, and the Two-Eye Stone. Can I just ask this question because I want to know the answer sure. to it? Esoteric369 says, do you think the deep state is using the Two-Eye Stone for weaponization, unfortunately? Where is it now? 
Well, I think that they're after a series of ancient technological artifacts to see how they can reactivate that kind of technology. I think a lot of the Belial cult around Epstein and Maxwell is related to this, and it goes directly to the research in the hot zone. That's why all those high-level uh, scientists like Stephen Hawking is down there. You know, <laughs> I understand the, the Epsteins used, you know, scientists and put them in all these situations for orgies and things like that. You know, Stephen Hawking, like, <laughs> why is he down there? And they do this retrofitted, custom-fitted submarine for him called Atlantis, okay? They put him in there. And they go down depths of the water, and what are they looking at? You know, they're obviously looking at ruins in the hot zone. And so this story, the hot zone story, which I've put on the record here, all the elements are that you can see all the different people have investigated it from their own um, points of view. But if you put that story together, it is massive. It's It has political dimensions. It has spiritual dimensions. It has technological uh, dimensions. So... You know, let's remember that as we go along. The the rush around finding the Hall of Records that Casey had mentioned. Um, one of the things that Casey said was, look, all the information for the construction of the Two-Eye Stone is right there in the Hall of Records. That's like a gift to humanity. But, of course, it could be misused. And he's telling the guy he's giving the reading to, he says, look, you know, if you're able <laughs> to do this, don't misuse the two eye stone, you know, like he did it once before and it destroyed Atlantis. So, you know, we have to look at it on that level too, which is how prepared is humanity for something of that power? And uh, so it is very interesting seeing the way we've misused a lot of the technology we've got. Scientists yeah. can't help themselves. Um, <laughs> speaking of, would you, would you think that CERN has their own two eye stone that they're utilizing and that's part of the Mandela effect? No, I think CERN is, uh, yeah, I mean, it's an example of advanced technology gone wrong and the atom smasher aspect of it, you can track through the government for decades. Um, so it is, in a sense, um, in terms of gleaming universal information, dimensional information, and um, you know physics information, it is very much like the Two Eye Stone. Uh, it, it has that ability. They did use the Two Eye Stone as an interface to the spiritual realm, and it seems to me that CERN is almost like an interface into you know like kind of dial into what you get so you can you can use it you know to tune into something that's kind of lower astral as Gigi Young would say <laughs> quite appropriately and with that Miss Olivia okay. our super chat salute all right uh <laughs> let me thank I am I and I Mark Lane Eurythmia Spun Thomas Ball Desk Hat Brock Happy Camper Helena Wilcox, Globe Atlantis, Bill, John Folden, Phil Canelli, Ivan Langley, Sherry, uh, Dimity Star Essentials, Terry Doherty, AHF All Hardwood Floor, Johnny Ricardo Bound, uh, Donna Marie Farrell, Roosevelt Media News, John Thayer Sr., Jonathan McIntosh, Janie, Jay Parsons, Channeling the Heart, Barbara Joyce, Jennifer Walters, Trotter 711, Amarillo Gunrunners, Larry Jackson, Erica Swenson-Elliott, and Jessica Rodriguez, thank you so much for your generous super chats. 
incredible uh, support. Thank you very much. And to all our supporters and to our subscribers, thank you. Because without you, we couldn't do the work that we do and bring you these reports. And uh, we look forward to bringing you many more. We will be back with you next week. Will we? Uh, yes, but <laughs> the, uh, the X, the X series will be back in January. Mm-hmm. You've got a good point there. And I'll do a couple of shout outs too. I wanted to mention two quick things from Gordon's bio. One quick question that he asks, which I think is important considering all of his experience with space. It's short too. So he's so fascinated, um, by the knowledge that the Olmecs use. And he says, in fact, the same stars were used by Apollo to navigate to the moon and back. And he goes, this left me wondering, why have celestial navigation, why have celestial navigation signs if they weren't navigating celestially? Really good question. Did this advanced navigational knowledge develop independently in three different places in the ancient worlds at the very same time? If not, then how did it get from Egypt to Crete to Mexico? And if so, reason dictates they must have had help. If they had help, then from whom? And the suggestion when we look at it might be, oh, he's talking about ancient aliens there. But given the background that we know on Cooper with his archaeological works and his missions for NASA over the hot zone, is he saying they had help from the Atlanteans? (laughs) That is the question. Um, and I'll leave you with that tonight. I'll do a couple of shout outs here and bravo, Miss Olivia. Thank you. Nicely done. Whew. Smoking on the ideas room. Merry Christmas, everyone. Larry Jackson. Thank you, sir. P. Penn, Fulcanelli, <laughs> Corey Anderson, Adam Hughes, Sajat Madre, Giza Death Star, Pratt Boy Genius. I think it's easy for us to forget in the not-so-distant past, people could see the Milky Way and the whole night sky all the time. It's an excellent point. It's a different consciousness. What's funny is, um, <laughs> Gisa Destar says, and then there's Hillary. What's interesting is, Casey said in Egyptian times that the awareness level was different and that things that were taking place above you 10 miles, you were aware of just walking around. So we have lost some awareness in that consciousness level, and we've picked up a kind of technological awareness. We'll see. Don Newey says, Olivia has such a lovely voice. Boy, have I heard that a lot. She's got a stack of fan mail that big, too. Uh, Olivia, can you ask Daniel his opinion about the Belgian UFO wave? I think this is very Interesting and out of control thing that happened in the early 90s with all of those very unusual Belgian craft. You had police people involved. You had um, somebody was checking something out. And uh, to me, it looked like the technology involved may have been advanced human technology. And somebody got spooked and, and showed a lot of it all at once. Um but I think there are other cases of that type of technology that looks like it's something's here from somewhere else. <laughs> uh, okay, Corey Anderson, great show. Thank you. 
Roosevelt Media News. This isn't great a question. To see I there. just, I yeah. would like you to, to respond to this. Uh-huh. I'm not dead yet. Said, wasn't it also said by Werner von Braun, quote, we had help? Yeah, I think, um, what's interesting is that quote comes from, um, is it Cord Davis? <laughs> if Joseph's still out there, I'm going to think, I'm going to say it's Davis that said that. Uh, and that, that's my guess. So, <laughs> but one of them did, uh, for Dr. sure. Eurythmia's fun. Thank you. Great to see you out there. Fantastic ideas from the questions were off the charts. Classified propulsion, two words. Yep. I'd say you're right on the money. DJ, thank you. And Olivia for all you do. Thank you, Rendela. It was Herman Obert. That's the one. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Farrell, for clearing that one up. <laughs> Fantastic. And, uh, of course, that last episode with Dr. Farrell, we had um, a Kennedy special that we included him in, and I recommend everyone watch that, from November 22nd, Blue Enigma. It's just off the charts. And uh, if you want some of those NASA pieces, watch out. <laughs> DJ, could Veronica... The character in the movie Five Days in May, the movie, could Veronica be the character in the movie Five Days in May, the movie Kennedy approved of? You mean Valerie, right? Um, isn't that interesting that the, uh, huh, well, it's a good question. It's possible, um, there's something very unusual. I think the characters in that movie can be pegged to different people and the COG commander overlap with Roswell and everything. I think, <laughs> he's connecting a lot of dots there and putting them out in a very X-share-like fashion. I'm not sure the dates work with Valerie, and the, I think the movie came out in 64, but um, it's possible. Macrocosm and microcosm. Yes, Tina Boric, great to see you out there. Thank you. Nick Malone, Merry Christmas. X-Series Ideas Room, indeed. Nick and everyone in the ideas from Merry Christmas. Um, we, we definitely, uh, there's a lot still to be had <laughs> for December, but, uh, <laughs> this is going to be something else. DJ, did you want the Obama produced film leave the world? But did you watch it? And what did you think of it? Hell I, no. <laughs> I saw clips of that. I caught the message of the, you know, all the virus stuff and the anti-white stuff, very strange, very strange. What's interesting is a lot of people don't know this, but um, Obama has this deep relationship with Netflix, but he he's producing a movie based on the Betty and Barney Hill uh, UFO abduction experience. I find that a weird place to find Obama, let me tell you. But yeah, excellent question. Corey Anderson, David Murphy, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. <laughs> Thank you very much. Jennifer and Bucks, Merry Christmas to the family. It's great to see you, Jennifer. Um, Gypsy Moon, excellent. Adam, David Murphy, Denise Goodall, fantastic group out there in the ideas tonight. Ideas Room, Kat Goyd is out there. Pray for peace. Indeed, indeed we shall. Excellent point. Um, and Ivan Langley. Merry Christmas, Bardo, Gypsy Moon. (laughs) 
a great crew out there. And uh, the Atlantis part, I think, becomes particularly important in 2024 and um, 2024, the UFO file, the 2024 presidential election and the Atlantis file. Watch out. Uh, of course, the X series, the work of Gigi Young, Joseph Farrell. <laughs> You're going to want to watch it closely. Remember, go for potency, the real potent information. Forget about the fluff and try to concentrate on where it counts. We will see you all next week and have a fantastic uh, weekend, everyone. And never let it be forgot that once there was a Camelot. And uh, one of these guys, <laughs> Bobby or Trump, could bring it back. So let's uh, let's all cross our fingers for those guys. And uh, it says end broadcast, but after all. Never really ends. Never really ends. Thank you, everyone. And uh, I guess we should really salute uh, Edgar Casey here at the end because without Edgar, well, we couldn't have done any of tonight's show really. So thank you, Edgar. <laughs> and uh, have a great evening, everyone. God bless. <laughs> it's great to see you and we'll see you soon. <laughs>